Good evening, everybody. Uh, who who was that? that? That was Matt. Oh, hey, you know what? I don't. I do the intro every time. You you know what? You do this one. Oh, okay. You want me to do this one? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. You're always like, oh, you do the worst intros. I want to see. I want to see how good you are. Come on. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, this is the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Matt, and my co-host is with me. I assume. Named. Uh, my name's Kyle Bird. <laughs> Kyle, are you dead? I'm here. I'm good. I'm <laughs> okay. alright. Everything's fine. We do have a uh, really awesome uh, guest with us today. Uh, Nick Adam Poling from the Monster Report. Nick, say hello. Hello, everyone. Good to be here on Kaiju Transmissions. Which technically, he's been on here before. This is like his first like regular episode, though. Yeah, he did the. Uh, we did a Gamera panel at G Fest, and actually, Nick was the person that kind of hooked us up with that opportunity. So, thank you again for that, Nick. That was and awesome. he um he joined you in indiana for the uh kitagawa interview you guys did that together oh yeah you uh, right. we we could not have done that without your equipment at all and re- <laughs> we also got to record uh one of i, th- I think that might have been nakajima's last con appearance because he had that uh, panel interview on stage and i think nick got the audio for that for us as well so nick's a, a superstar as far as i'm concerned Oh, well, thank you so much, and I was glad to be a part of that. And honestly, you know, don't cut yourself short, uh, gentlemen, because uh, it was your connections that got us uh, into the uh, Days of the Dead convention there in Indianapolis to be able to have that interview in the first place with uh, Kitagawa. Unfortunately, Mr. Nakajima was in bad health, and, uh, you know, and it was in the last days of his life. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to get an interview personally with him, but was very it was very great to be there with him, meet him, and uh, and give the chance to at least be there at that panel. I kind of wish, of course, that we could have maybe host that panel. That would have been that would have just been stellar. It, yeah, it would have been a better panel too because some of these <laughs> questions were bad. Um, Actual fans doing this panel that would have been interesting. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Matt and I were on your show, uh, the Monster Report. I think. We we talked about King Kong before Skull Island came out, and then I did a brief piece for you. Well, I did I did I did one on Bono when he passed. That's right. Yeah, and then I sent you a short video about Nakajima as well. So we're we're not strangers. Um, well, Nick, it's always great to collaborate. I yeah. Well, 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 Nick. Just uh, for for those who aren't familiar, just take about a minute to just uh, plug. Your YouTube channel, The Monster Report, it's been around for a while now, um, but yeah, let, let people know what it is, where they can find you. Sure. Um, yeah, on YouTube, um, look look up Monster Report or my name, Nick Adam, which is my real name. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, playing up the Nick Adams uh, deal for all those G fans out there that think that's my pseudonym. I am Nick Adam polling, so uh, look me up on YouTube. Uh, also, MonsterReport.com, Monster Report with one R. Been doing this show since 2014, uh, shortly before the release of the 2014 Godzilla. Uh, started by joining in on the... Uh, the, the craze with the 2014 film being released and everyone was doing Godzilla alerts, putting Godzilla in your hometown and seeing what it would look like if he were there. So anything from selfie videos of people pointing in the sky saying run away to people actually keying out the sky and making it look like Godzilla was literally in your hometown. And uh, that Godzilla alert video is actually up to 4.1 something million views 
Um, and uh, that's done pretty well for my uh, channel, actually. I kind of wish all the rest of my uh, shows would do that, but uh, we can't do that kind of a video each and every time. But uh, I've had some great interviews, uh, done some solo reviews, some news reports, and I've done some uh, uh, mock trailers uh, that... Uh, take some of the classic Godzilla films and make the, put them together with, uh, with uh, more modern, royalty-free music just to kind of give a different spin on it. So it's a fun show to put together. Kind of been on a brief hiatus because of some job changes I've had, but I will be getting back to more regularly uh, putting shows together and uh, just excited to get to that point. It's also very cold here in Indiana, so my garage studio, um, I, I can see my breath in and I just don't feel like shooting too many episodes out there right now. Um, so it's great to do this podcast in the comfort of my, uh, of my office here that's nice and heated and, uh, and be with you guys. So appreciate the plug and uh, being on your show again. It's great. Yeah, so um, we're here for... Uh, Probably one of our mo to get into one of our most requested topics, I think. Uh, I don't know, Matt Ultraman was a pretty big like people really wanted us to do that for a while, but I, I second is probably getting into this stuff. Would you would you agree? Yeah, Ultraman was up there, and definitely uh, Harryhausen. We've had some requests for some Kaite Amamiya stuff, so mm -hmm. uh, we'll get there as well. But yeah, yeah. This, this is definitely one of the bigger requests we've had. Um, and that is, of course, uh, one Mr. Ray Harryhausen, and, um, yeah, he has a rich filmography, and so we've, uh, kind of broken it up thematically or however, and we'll be doing, I think we have at least five more, uh, planned, but, uh, I think... The Atomic Age Giant Monsters is, is not only the beginning of his feature films, but also where anyone listening who might not be familiar with his work is probably going to be the best entry point, at least for this show. Um, and uh, so Ray, is, if you don't know, is a, a special effects artist who uh, really took everything that was he learned from, well, not only watching King Kong and uh, the films of Willis O'Brien, but, you know, being able to work under him on Mighty Joe Young, which um, we did cover last year um, b right before Skull Island. So um, we're not going to get too much into Mighty Joe Young uh, on here, so please go and reference that episode, though, if you want us to, to, to hear us talk about it. So the, Great movie, but um, but yeah, uh, but he really took the the stop motion technique and redefined it, and um, in doing so, really kind of laid the groundwork for everything from you know, well, the the kaiju movies to. Stuff like, um, you know, Spielberg... I mean, you, you watch any documentary on Harryhausen, you'll see a lot of familiar faces. Spielberg, James Cameron, Guillermo del Toro, Terry Gilliam, Tim Burton. I mean, the list is keeps going from there. Uh, and talking about how when they were kids, seeing his movies is what made them say, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And... Ray is really probably the only effects artist that I think 
was really the auteur, the the true voice of of the films that he worked on. You know, everything from you know producing script approval and script rewrites um, to you know director approval. I mean, it, it all came from from him. Not to discredit those other filmmakers, but you know, the, the he he was the auteur of his movies, and no other. I don't. I can't think of another special effects person that can claim that. The closest would probably be Subaraya. Um, just because of he had such a heavy hand, but um, but yeah, other than them, that's not something that was common. So, um, Ray is the master of stop motion. Which, um, hmm, Matt, tell the people what stop uh, what stop motion is for anyone who might not know for whatever reason. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's basically taking a uh, some sort of model and frame by frame adjusting it to fit the live action sequences, or in this case, like for King Kong, a lot of like painted matte, um, painted matte backgrounds, and it's incredibly painstaking. I think I read something that like two two minutes of footage was over like almost three thousand adjustments. So imagine having to adjust like a hand. In, in like an arm in a sequence. I mean, that's probably a couple hundred sh- uh, shots just in itself. Ray often said, like, if he was doing something like, you know, the Medusa from Clash of the Titans and he's animating the snakes in the hair, like if someone called him on the phone, like he would forget like what head was going to point what way and like <laughs> he'd have to like start all over again. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, 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 essentially it's a pain in the ass. Uh, the other thing that's special about Ray, though, is that he did all of these big spectacle movies, and he was the sole effects person. He built all the miniatures, did all the compositing, did all the animation, all by himself, except on, you know, the stuff he did with O'Brien in his early days, and the other exception is Clash of the Titans, where, you know, he he had assistance. Everything else is all him, and that's also why... I think his stuff was was what it was because he knew that you know it would be cheaper to just let him do it by himself and he was able to really experiment with all sorts of different techniques and if he was working with a crew of like you know however many people he wouldn't have really had his, had that kind of freedom so um that's another thing that was just very special about his work um you you guys get bothered when people call it claymation? Like claymation is like a form of stop motion, but stop motion isn't claymation. Does that, that bother you guys? I mean, <laughs> uh, y- yeah. I mean, what? I don't know. Like, does it? People are dumb. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Nick, what do you well, think? Well, okay, yeah. To uh, kindly correct them is what I typically <laughs> end up doing. Um, that that claymation is a form of art. If you watch your Wallace and Gromit, uh, my kids are also a big fan of uh, the same corrector, uh, uh, creators of that. Create Sean the Sheep. Uh, these British actual claymation uh, stop motion animators and so there is something to be said about um, using clay to do what you're you're doing but uh, Mr. Harryhausen did not use clay figures in any of the creatures uh, or special effects that he was creating Um, you know they were armatures with built up um, rubberized cast molds around them uh, they would be able to stand up against the light the intense heat of the light so this was a lot more than 
claymation. And if you guys remember that they actually gave uh, stop motion animation a kind of signature trademark name. Did you guys uh, find that name? I'm talking about uh, Dynamation? Correct. Dynamation or Electric, electric or Electric, Electric, I forget, yeah, uh, Dynamation. Essentially, just uh, something to put on the um, uh, movie posters and uh, publicity uh, imagery and trailers to say this is done in Dynamation, big as life. And everyone's asking, what is Dynamation? Well, it's Ray Harryhausen's uh, special way of uh, adding... Uh, a life to the creatures of these films and that's we'll get into it a little later but of course is what made these films Harryhausen films beyond the fact that they had a director and he's not the director of these films he's a special effects creator so um the the first portion of this podcast is going to be a big info dump um just because there's so much history and you know, his early years, he was working with so many prominent people. So uh, we've kind of broken it up, and we're going to kind of get get through that as easily as we can. So uh, Ray was born uh, June 29th in 1920 in Los Angeles. And I think like probably all of us and everyone listening, he was fascinated by dinosaurs, science fiction, he would read science magazines, dinosaur encyclopedias, um, just loved uh, the genre, was a big fan of, you know, H.G. Wells novels, um, and he became a real movie lover when he saw The Lost World in 1925, which, of course, um, we actually did cover The Lost World as well, the Willis O'Brien movie that really started all of this. Um, so you can backtrack and listen to that episode from... This past summer, where we had um, Nick Ciccone, who uh, observed the um, reconstruction of it for the new uh, um, extended cut that came out on Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, we, we go in-depth in The Lost World, um, so check that out. But um, yeah, he, he found that fascinating, and from there, other stuff like Metropolis uh, and Fritz Lang Siegfried... Um, and uh, really, it all changed for him in 1933 when a little movie uh, named King Kong came out. And the famous Grauman's Chinese Theater, the owner, Sid Grauman, uh, gave Ray's parents three tickets to all go and see King Kong. And that really gave him, I mean, that just blew him away. And it was like nothing he'd ever seen. And he, that, that that's where it started. And that's... Uh, similar to the story of uh, A.G. Tsuburaya, it's the same thing. He saw King Kong, and it was, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to find out how they did that, that's what I'm going to do. And um, speaking of Tsuburaya, I will say, he was a huge fan of stop motion, and I'm sure if he had the money and the time, he would have made all the Toho movies with stop motion, but they just didn't have those resources, and you know, he innovated the tokusatsu stuff because of that. But, um, uh, anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, that changed everything for Ray and was just obsessed with it. And before the internet, he was, you know, I mean, he was obsessed with it, looking for every picture, every still, every article, every scrap of information you could find on King Kong, especially how it was done. There were a lot of articles where, you know, I mean, back then, the you know, the filmmakers didn't want to give away how 
everything was done. The effects were like magic tricks back then. And, you know, he would read a lot of articles that would just kind of have just bad information. But he finally found an article in a magazine called Look um, that uh, uh, kind of broke it down in detail. And um, he also found out a little more because his father had some mutual friends that had very small uh, roles on the crew of King Kong. Um, and from there, he started making his own models, and his parents were very supportive, very helpful. Um, his father was a machinist, and he, up until this 1973, even when Ray became a professional uh, making his own like real movies in Hollywood, his father built the armatures for those, and his mom would do you know costumes for you know miniature puppets and stuff. So it was it was kind of a family affair in a way. Um, and yeah, from there he made dinosaur models. The first thing he made was a cave bear that he, he built a wooden frame and used uh, one of his mom's old fur coats for the fur. And he started doing his own test footage and kind of figuring it out. Um, and as we go through this, like you will learn how many people he networked with that either were huge names or people that became famous. And, and, and when he was 18... You know, he was, uh, that's when he met his two best friends, who uh, would be Forey Ackerman, who went on to basically start horror and science fiction journalism with famous monsters of film land, and uh, Ray Bradbury, who would eventually grow up to be arguably the most famous science fiction author uh, to come out of America. And yeah, they just met because they were nerds like us, and they were in you know, little sci-fi clubs where they'd get together and talk about movies or books uh, that they read. Um, and yeah, so Ray, Ray kept working and doing his own test footage and concept art and making ideas for things that he wanted to do. And um, and then one day in high school, oddly enough, um, uh, Ray noticed a girl in one of his classes was reading a hardbound a copy of the King Kong script, which I does that happen <laughs> when you're in high school? Do, do do you guys ever recall? No, never. Any, not any, one any, time. You know, a girl in your class reading the King Kong script. Um, uh, I think I saw girls that like some girls watched anime, but that's like the closest thing that I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, but it had turned out she'd gotten it because her, her dad work, had worked with O'Brien. And she just said to Ray, you know, yeah, he's got an office at MGM right now. Why don't you just call him and, you know, tell him like, hey, I love King Kong. I want to know how you how you do it. And I don't think this could happen these days. But sure, he just called MGM and got a hold of O'Brien. And he, he was like, yeah, sure, you know, uh, we'll meet. And, and that's when O'Brien... Um, or Obi, as he is affectionately called by a lot of people. He was in the middle of a uh, pre-production on a movie that, geez, like every idea this poor man had uh, did not get made. Um, we will do a whole episode about O'Brien in the future, but I'm warning you, have like a <laughs> bottle of antidepressants with you because uh, his life and really his career is just incredibly sad. Um, but... Uh, War Eagles was actually actually sounded awesome. It was about like giant birds that nested in 
in I think the Eiffel Tower and fought like uh, like like helicopters and stuff. It was pretty sweet. Uh, we'll get into that on another episode. Someone needs to make that right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you can buy like the the script. I think like I, they publish it as a book. Um, but yeah, so Ray visited him at the War Eagles office, and he showed him some of his dinosaur footage, and Obi gave him um, some constructive uh, criticism. The one Ray always likes to say is um, when he was told his stegosaurus' his legs looked like sausages. Um, and, you know, he gave him some tips and and stuff on sculpting and animating. And um, Ob- back then, I mean, hell, even today... Any people interested in making a career out of stop motion was really rare, and O'Brien really saw the potential in this young kid that came to visit him, and they really kind of they kind of kept in touch. Um, you know, uh, um, Ray and his parents would go to O'Brien's house uh, for dinners, and you know they just kind of hit it off. Um, so uh, we're gonna get into uh, at this point. He Ray is. Um, getting his his first professional jobs uh, with George Pale, who is a famous movie producer and director. He did War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, etc. And um, he was drafted into the war. So, Nick, I think, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, some of his early jobs and uh, his experience in World War II? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, the the George Powell there reference just before we uh, kind of go further than that, um, you know, the George Powell being the producer of the War of the Worlds, uh, director and producer of the Time Machine. Uh, but, you know, the War of the Worlds uh, did not use um, Ray Harryhausen's special effects uh, in that. And wouldn't, wouldn't it have been an interesting kind of uh, look to that film if we got to see actually Ray, Ray Harryhausen's uh, visual effects on that film. I well, like when, when, not to cut you off, but yeah, real quick, um, when Pell was getting War of the Worlds rolling, Ray was, he pitched him War of the Worlds, and he actually did some test footage that it's pretty fi- easy to find. Like, it's on YouTube, it's on some DVDs, so that could have happened in an alternate universe. Correct. And uh, yeah, so looking up that, you know, d- essentially like deleted scenes or yeah, concept uh, test footage of that. But wouldn't it have been, yeah, just a different kind of film? Again, I like War of the Worlds. Uh, it's not one of my favorites, but I do enjoy watching it. And I think the special effects were still great in that. But getting into World War Two and uh, the early life of uh, and the early career life of, uh, of Mr. Harryhausen, of course, um, Yes, drafted into the war, expecting that he would be drafted. He went to take some classes to become a combat cameraman. Uh, this is uh, this is news to me. Actually, made a short film, How to Build a Gorge, during this time, um, and seeing what his stop motion uh, talent could do in a military training video. So he used his talents in that. It wasn't as if uh, you were seeing Ray, um, uh, you know, just in combat all the time. He was his skills were used. Uh, you know, for the benefit of the military, and even uh, through this, spent time with Dr. Seuss, uh, who is also in the Army doing cartoon strips at this time, and even Ray got the chance to uh, sculpt a character, one of Seuss's characters, Snafu, for artist reference. If you actually look up Snafu, uh, you know, as part of that war propaganda during World War II, have either of you seen any of the Snafu um, cartoon characters? Yeah, um, yeah, they're... they're, uh, interesting yeah yeah there's um i think my casablanca dvd has a snafu cartoon on it 
Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, you got to put yourself during that time, you know, right now <laughs> we wouldn't see anything like that being created, but yeah, that no, was, we, we would not. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it would be highly controversial, but you know, even during its time, it was something that uh, people could get behind actually, but uh, it, they're fun to watch actually. And uh, you know, and so as he was in the army, he was able to actually, you know, use his talents. He was actually able to use uh, thousands of feet as discarded film stock. We've seen a lot of these films using, um, using stock footage. So they could be anything from uh, military tanks, submarines, what have you, and uh, was able to put together short films that he could sell to television, schools, what have you. And so um, this is a, also at the time where he decided to make his fairy tale shorts uh, starring Mother Goose, starting with Mother Goose stories. And he uh, even took jobs animating commercials uh, to fund these fairy tale shorts. So he was quite busy during this time. And this is also skip- where... Um- Oh yeah, we skipped over Puppet Tunes, which those were George Pale's anim like he did, he was doing these short animated films where it was stop motion, but uh, he had a big crew of people, and the way the models were animated was like it's called the replacement method, where like every head or limb would be like a different thing that you attach. So imagine like a character with like fifty heads, and you just have to like replace each one, and um, I th- I fr- he did a handful of those. Uh, for a couple years and uh by chance one of them uh, willis o'brien worked on and he worked on it for like a few days and he just hated that replacement technique and he was like yeah i'm out but yeah for a couple years ray was working directly under george pale also um but yeah the 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 fairy tales we'll get back to the, uh, nick i'll let you get into those in a moment i didn't mean to cut you off but uh um if you i'm if, if you guys have you guys seen those and if you ha- and because even if you haven't, I feel like they're like circulated enough that if you saw like a clip from them, you would be like, "Oh, that." You know, I probably have. Uh, regrettably, I can't can't say that I've specifically looked it up to to see these. But um, you know, in a lot of the different documentaries I've seen on classic monster films and uh, going into um, artists like Ray Harryhausen and several other visual effects artists. Um, there's probably been some clips of, mm-hmm. of those. Uh, and even, you know, one of my favorites is that, uh, have you seen the, what is it called? The Dinosaur Chronicles, uh, Hollywood Dinosaur Chronicles documentary? No, uh, I don't know. I've seen that's so a, many, that's a good, yeah, I've seen so many stuff like, like documentaries and trailer compilations that they all just kind of like, they blend together. Yeah. 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 That's where I remember actually as a kid seeing that on television, I think it was on TNT and, uh, or may have been discovery channel, something to that effect. But, uh, you know, that's where I kind of, uh, started seeing, you know, Gertie, the dinosaur, yep, of yep. course. And, now, uh, Gertie, I have seen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, everyone, yeah. has probably seen, yeah, that, that, uh, that animation of course. And uh, of course, during that time looking, you know, just very remarkable and, but, you know, wait for a few years and you're going to see, in a lost world king kong and uh and here we are now actually in the time of ray's life if i can get into uh mighty joe young when he got the chance to meet work with uh willis o'brien yep um, so yeah he got that call from willis o'brien to come back and work with him on his new gorilla movie uh unlike king kong uh we have mighty joe young um working with producer john ford and uh, john ford yes yes <laughs> And, um, 
and of course, uh, you know, we had uh, the the Kong uh, lineup there of Marion Sue Marion Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Shodzak attached to this as well. So he would do the concept art for this, but he ended up doing the bulk of the stop motion animation for the film. Uh, this isn't one of his solo projects. Uh, he uh, has his solo uh, beginnings with the, well, the film we'll be talking about in a minute, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. But uh, this one, he was working with the crew, and uh, but Obi earned the Oscar for, of course, the effects work on that. But um, well, de- <laughs> well deserved and probably the only time in his life where he got the recognition he should have. <laughs> correct. Correct. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Of course, you'll probably talk about that in your Willis O'Brien episode. But yeah, after after this, this is kind of the peak for uh, Willis O'Brien. But the beginning of the great career of Mr. Ray Harryhausen. So, um Willis O'Brien and Harryhausen would continue to work on concept art for a lot of production, proposed um, production, um, you know, shorts and films. And unfortunately, uh, none of these got off the ground. And so many of them uh, end up kind of like some of the discarded ideas that led to King Kong, you know, the story of creation. Mm in the spider pit sequence, you know, the lost one of that, uh, you know, some of these things that everyone talks about, but how many more projects would have been uh, really interesting to see if it were possible to get some of these projects uh, funded uh, between these two masters of their, of their artwork. Um, but uh, with no work available, rent Ray went back to doing his fairy tales and uh, made his little red riding hood, Hansel and Gretel, Rapunzel, you know, a lot of these children's stories, um, took time to develop his own ideas. Again, World of the World, War of the Worlds, um, which he did test footage for, we talked about earlier, and, um, you know, working with George Powell. But unfortunately, again, we didn't get to see, um, you know, his special effects on that film. But uh, the proof is in the history of, of Ray's. Uh, ongoing work in these films. As I said earlier, not many people remember the directors of these films, but they definitely remember that they were Ray Harryhausen films uh, because he was the special effects director working alone and he, uh, you know, his signature touch was on it and that's what keeps us going back to it year after year and uh, watching these films and we'll be watching them for years and years after this. So, yeah, we'd love to hear about... uh, his first project, of course, here, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. If you listen to this podcast, I, I assume you've heard of the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, mainly because it is... Uh, the noted story from, from Tomoyuki Tanaka is that he was reading a synopsis of the film while uh, in, in a trade magazine while on a flight, and he paired that with the Lucky Dragon incident um, where the Japanese fisherman uh, waded into the... Um, the blast radius of a, not the blast radius, but like basically the, the nuclear fallout from a, an American atomic bomb test. Those two ideas came together to, of course, uh, inspire Godzilla. So that's why one of, that's one of the reasons why this particular film, the beast from 20,000 fathoms is so very significant. And in fact, um, Godzilla's original title was pitched as the giant monster from 20,000 leagues or miles under the sea, um, <laughs> which is, there's a mouthful. <laughs> no, right. Uh, that is, I mean, you know, they obviously weren't even trying to hide where the inspiration was coming from at that point. <laughs> that rem- that's uh, like those, as- the Asylum, like, movies, <laughs> like, when Transformers Atlantic comes Atlantic. out, there's like, they put out Transmorphers. <laughs> Atlantic Rim? Yeah, Atlantic Rim, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and all of those, yeah, the, the rip-off films, yeah, and uh, yeah, this isn't even tried, but how many times have we seen 20,000-somethings? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All of these, yeah, so it's always such a, you know, beyond uh, measure kind of, uh, uh, of, you know, title, but a lot of these films, Harryhausen ended up ended up being a mouthful, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, It Came from Beneath the Sea. 20 million miles to earth instead of it just being called for instance the beast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so so yeah this this is literally the movie that gave birth to godzilla i mean there's no there's no way around it oh for sure that and you know king kong i mean you can't deny the influence that these films had on tokusatsu in general and certainly on uh toho and edgy Tsuburaya and tomoyuki tanaka and um, I mean, the whole thing is is inspired by stop motion, which is pretty awesome to think about. Um, one of the people was, was Jack Dietz, and he was working on a project with him about a sea monster. And Dietz was unsure how to bring the monster to life. So he had a meeting with Ray, and of course, after meeting Ray and the, after meeting the crew and Dietz, Ray was eventually hired for the project. Um, director Eugene Laurie, uh, who was actually a famous art director, he was originally hired as the art director, but because of the tiny budget, um, he was actually just promoted to director and he got to work with Ray and they apparently got along very well. One interesting uh, fact about this script is that the original script um, has the beast awoken by drilling deep into the earth's crust and then scientists built a robot to destroy it, which is a great idea. That sounds awesome to me. Well, the the Japanese (laughs) have been doing that since since who knows how long. It is interesting to think about that that was the original script for this, and then, geez, this was 53? Like, shortly after, I mean, that's when you have, like, Tezuka and... All those like Go Nagai and all those guys that did all these giant robot versus monsters and all that stuff. Like, um, yeah, they that you just summed up like ninety percent of the the anime that Guillermo del Toro watches. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and then eventually after fighting the robot, um, it has to be destroyed with uh, the beast has to be destroyed with an atomic bomb. The next version of the script. Hang on. Uh, hang on. Inter- yeah, Isn't yeah. that also kind of weird? It's like the atomic bomb, the problem and solution. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I was going to, I hope we, we're going to touch on that, I think. Uh, I mean, we could do it now, I guess. But like the whole idea of here's this problem that we, we created and then now we're going to use the same problem as the solution. Like it just. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that ending got ditched because it leaves kind of a weird. It's a very American uh, perspective, though, right? I mean. Oftentimes we consider, you know, the atomic bombings like uh, it was a necessary evil, la la la. That's like what we say or tell to ourse- ourselves. So that that is a very American kind of approach. But I, I'm I'm glad they ditched it because it, the thema- it wouldn't have as much thematic weight with it. I agree. And I, the, the next version of the script um, has the beast still awoken by the atomic bomb blast, but then in the end, it's still killed by the to- the atom bomb. So. They, they were not distancing themselves quite enough from that concept, I think, and, and I think it would have ultimately, as you said, kind of ruined the ending that we did get, which I think is awesome. Um, after being unable to decide what kind of creature or dinosaur or monster attacks, uh, Ray eventually decided to make the Retosaurus, which 
is a monster that's essentially just a combination of different dinosaurs. And you'll really see it when you watch the film. Like you can see it's got like a smaller set of, of back legs and the four legs are a little bit longer and it looks kind of like a serpent. It's a really awesome creation. Um, it's a great, yeah, it's a great, I, I great now, design. Yeah, I think now we're going to talk about the, uh, the well, the, the background for the beast itself, which was the story of the foghorn. So Nick, you want to go and take that? Yes, absolutely. I was actually just watching before we went on um, the extra feature on the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms DVD with Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen, who were great friends we've talked about, and uh, and they were good friends from childhood to their their golden years. And so the um, the the funny story about how it came about, and Ray tells the story in that um, that little forum that they recorded for that um, bonus feature, was that they called uh, they called Bradbury out to to view uh, or to read the script, and uh, and he said, well, that's very similar to something I wrote for the Saturday Evening Post titled The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And it was kind of like, I imagine everyone in the room's face got a little bit red because now, uh, you know, the cat's out of the bag. They they took a concept and story from, from uh, Ray Bradbury and started creating a film around that, and he called them out on it, in a sense, you know, in a very friendly way. He, I don't think he was quite offended because he did end up getting paid for it. They did end up paying him for the rights to his story and the concept art uh which um, if you look at it is that beast taking out the lighthouse which um kind of became the inspiration for even creating this film a lot of these harryhausen films start with something as simple as that we want to see this um dinosaur uh, knocking over a lighthouse just like this picture can you do something like that and then the story develops around that uh later it came from beneath the sea we'll say it it, it just it came from we want to see a giant squid or a giant octopus um, take out the <laughs> take out the Golden Gate Bridge and and it's like that's what you started with yeah we started with that idea and so this uh, story um, you know began with that concept art that story from Ray Bradbury they paid him for it and later Bradbury was able to re-release this short story under the title the Foghorn um, the Foghorn idea comes from you know you hear a foghorn out in the middle of the sea you hear that sound in the middle of the night and uh, of course it's to uh, warn ships of uh, you know fog so what if that weren't a foghorn but a monster's roar oh how frightening that would have been and so and and thinking about a lighthouse you know uh, shining its light over the the dark ocean and then uh, these men that have to you know uh, tend to it and that scene is just remarkable to see uh, you know that the destruction of that lighthouse uh, brought to life by the great visual effects of Ray Harryhausen and even the live action uh, work that was done with those uh, those characters uh, actually trying to get down the staircase and it's all collapsing around them. I think that's just a awesome shot actually that put together. But interestingly enough, this short story of the foghorn would later be adapted as an independent short. I just learned this tokusatsu film by a special effects um, technician, Daisuke, uh, Daisuke Sato, who's currently working on a follow-up short uh, with monster created by with a monster created by Keiji Murase. So we've got yeah, that again. Yeah, I mean, that, it, yeah, Murase is the one that built like all the a lot of the Showa Toho stuff, and that's the one that there was the big Kickstarter for. That yes. either yeah, yeah, that you probably saw plastered all over Facebook. But um, 
But yeah, have you guys read the Foghorn? I mean, it's it's really short. It's like ten pages or something. Like it's super short. I have not read it, and uh, no, I haven't. I feel bad though because I think it was in uh, one of our literature classes, actually. Oh yeah. I, like read it, I decided not to. I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I have it in like I have a collection of all of Bradbury's short stories, but um, yeah, it's it's a really short, but it's it's really atmospheric. Because I actually, again, I haven't read it. Yeah. You have. I well, have it's, 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 it's really simple. Um, and, uh, I guess there was, there one time Bradbury was sleeping and he woke up when he heard a really loud, uh, blaring, uh, foghorn from coming from the sea in the direction of this lighthouse. And I mean, Ra- Bradbury with that amazing imagination of his, he imagined a lonely sea monster hearing it and maybe thinking it was a, a mating call and he goes to the lighthouse and finding that uh, it's not another of his kind, he demolishes the lighthouse in a fit of rage. And I mean, that's really all there is to it. It's a very simple, uh, r- short story, and it's it's a it's a fun little read. And but yeah, I mean, th- th- that lighthouse sequence in the Beast is like is basically that. <laughs> and interestingly enough, yeah, they would have chosen a foghorn frequency that, uh, unfortunately, is is just so close to being yeah the the uh, same frequency that would have been a mating call for the monster. Uh, you know, uh, already a a creature that's out of time, out of place, and we just happen to have uh, you know the same frequency that would be you know a part of its roar and and the sound effects of a lot of these films as we go along uh you know put into the monsters roars and uh, different sound effects that they create uh also bring it to life uh what just complementing what ray harryhausen put together one of the things i was going to mention also about the the beast is it does have kind of an interesting roar but i gotta say um you know uh, being a tokusatsu fan, probably more so than a Harryhausen fan, I've always felt like Godzilla's roar when it, it probably came out in 1954 really just uh, hit people in their gut and said, uh, "This is frightening." Where I feel like the Beast is has got some frightening elements to its roar, but I don't feel like it hits the same way maybe mm-hmm. to strike that same fear Godzilla does. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, Godzilla's roar sounds a little more. I don't want to say alien, but it sounds a little bit more like something that, like, you, like, human ears shouldn't be hearing it. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it, it yeah. sounds like, yeah, it sounds like something that shouldn't ex- exist, and I think that's, it's such an unfamiliar kind of sound, and I think that's why it, I mean, ended up becoming so iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Godzilla's are always very guttural, and it's, uh, I think the scene in GMK where he, Godzilla, you know, lets out, it bellows his roar and like not blows out the windows. Like that's kind of what I think it would actually be like, and that would be terrifying. Um, and uh, real, real, real quick, back to the lighthouse, I want to mention that uh, Godzilla 2000 paid somewhat of a little uh, homage to this, uh, you know, this lighthouse scene. Of course, in the early part of that film, it's not a direct homage because we're, you know, it's it just doesn't really translate one to one, anyways. But uh, you know, that is that is that iconic image that comes from this film. When you think of beast from 20,000 fathoms, the first thing I think about anyways, is that fantastic lighthouse destruction scene. It's just, it just stands out. So it's an amazing scene and it's all done in silhouette, which makes it even like creepier. Yes, absolutely. 
um, the uh, go on if you wanted to take on. Um, well, okay. Um, well, Matt. Um, well, Matt, you you actually just read an article about Ray's really uh, innovations with stop motion, which, like we said, was branded as Dynamation. So, um, uh, I don't know. Did you want to? I, I kind of have have you with Dynamation here. This is the first movie that would incorporate that, and. Um, you, are are you good explaining it and why it's important, yeah. or, or I I can elaborate if you want me to. I got it. I think um, so. Essentially, the dynamation you have it, it's think of it like the practical effect that the actual uh, puppetry was done in the middle. There's actually three different frames, right? So you have a the model of miniatures will be set um, with a large glass pane in the back and the front of the set. And this would allow the background and foreground panes to have the footage projected onto them, and then you could superimpose the effects pretty easily. Um, the back panel was where the film footage was would be rear projected, so everything live action was basically the being shot in the back. And then the front panel would be any sort of paint matting and foreground images. And then the process in the middle would be Harryhausen actually doing the animation of, of the monster. So this was different from... Regular stop motion, because with regular stop motion, what you typically would see is whatever the creature was would be not really interacting on a one-to-one level. Like in Mighty Joe Young, you see that you have that awesome lasso sequence, right, where they um, are, are basically trying to um, get the the lions or whatever in, in that particular scene. So, like you, you don't, you're not able to to have the human characters interact with the with the puppetry characters. And the this particular technique got away with basically change all that allowing them to have true interaction on screens yeah. and now well, well you see, could but not like not in the um well like, you see like live action guys shooting flamethrowers yeah and, like the pinnacles of the of uh it you know the beast from it came beneath to see that kind of stuff yeah so um so it it's it's um the monster really like in previous movies like yeah mighty joe young king kong like the monster couldn't really be behind anything um or uh uh so so yeah the process was like the front mat that you use to paint things out um you'd use that to paint out the foreground like models buildings or cars and stuff and then basically mat it back into the negative so, I mean, to some people it might sound like we're just talking jibber-jabber, but, but base, it, it, in layman's terms, basically that, may, that means that there can be things going on in front of and behind the model that will be superimposed and look very natural. Um, you know, I think sometimes you see thing, other movies where things in the... In, in the things will be like kind of translucent or something because the compositing isn't all that great, but Ray found a way around all that. And that really made, um, his technique, uh, it made it a lot easier and more, he could get things done quicker and it would just look better. The foreground, the background and the model that is in the middle of that, like sandwich basically would all appear to be all happening like in the same space. Yes, and uh, one thing to remember about uh, Ray's 
process here. This is the first film that he had the chance to work alone uh, on these. And, um, you know, so he wasn't exactly there with the crew to make sure that he was rear projecting with the correct frame, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, if there was a frame that they had something present in there, they would have different uh, guide wires to help them uh, remember. But he was doing this alone. So when he would make uh, a little move on the creature and then take a frame and another move he'd have to remember himself that he took the frame some of the other stop motion effects wizard will tell you uh that they'll go to the camera operator did you take that frame i don't know did you i don't know i they would go back uh, should we take another one i don't know it might mess up the process and so this process that he had uh not just painstakingly long but easy to make a, a mistake a minor mistake that would end up uh, really, you know, throwing off your entire production, uh, you know, where you to the point where you'd have to start from scratch, um, or you know, you know, just ruin the day's worth of work. Uh, but Ray was able to, you know, uh, just when you listen to how he talks about his process, uh, he was able to keep all of that organized, working alone without distraction, without people coming in and criticizing his work. And uh, I mean, the proof is really in the pudding here. It's it, the history has shown that in his case, that he did work uh, so well alone because obviously everyone was blown away by these effects. Some people, you know, watching these was, were just like, okay, where did you find a monster? You know, where did you find a creature to do all of this? And it's like, that's a, that's a visual effect. That creature's maybe only eight inches tall. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a really great to not know all the process. Even he says in the commentary track, uh, he doesn't want to give away too much because it kind of ruins the magic. But some people like us, I think find just all of that process behind the, behind the scenes uh, just enlightens us and uh, makes us appreciate the films even more. Yeah, I know I said earlier, um, to get to your point about how with Dynamation, if, if, or stop motion, if you screw up one frame, it can ruin a lot of different things. Think about this. Two minutes of footage was basically th almost 3,000 takes, 3,000 different manipulations of the particular puppet. And, you know, that's, uh, if you screw one of those up, you got to go back and start over or find out where you were. That's one of the reasons Ray essentially kind of shut himself off. Like he didn't want people bringing him coffee. He didn't want people calling him. He wanted to be left alone to his work while he was working so that he could keep his focus and not lose his spot. And he mentioned uh, in an interview with Tim Burton that the Beast was filled. The live action footage for the Beast was a two to three week process. But his portion of the movie, the, the actual creature itself, took about seven months. That's also wow. one of the reasons why they couldn't do Godzilla with stop motion because they, they didn't have that kind of time. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's really the, the big, I mean, history with, with all this. So I think now we're, we can just kind of get into our more casual uh, shtick. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're sticking with the beast. Uh, anyone that hasn't seen it and is listening to this podcast, I mean, to understand where the things that you love, i.e. Godzilla, come from, I mean, you, you owe it to yourself to, uh, to check this out. And, um, <clears throat> uh, but, I mean, the, this is the first of the Atomic Age monster movies that both in the U.S. and in Japan would continue up until, well, geez, I mean, you still, you still get movies about 
atomic mutations and and stuff like that. So it wasn't just Godzilla that this inspired. It was like monster movies, like like every other sci-fi or horror movie in the 50s seemed to be about, uh, you know, some creature that was mutated or awoken by, by, you know, atomic testing or whatever. Um, So the beast, and of course, some of this is going to be familiar for obvious reasons. Uh, It starts with uh, an atomic bomb test. Um, The opening is a lot more similar to Gamera. The original Gamera is in, um, but uh, yeah, it's in the Arctic and it releases out of the ice the Redosaurus, who um, uh, the only survivor of this uh, initial attack in the beginning, of course, he goes to paleontologists and nobody believes him that he saw a dinosaur. And um, he ends up, uh, you know, um, going through like a procedural to find out like what attacked him. And um, he's like, no, I swear it was a dinosaur. And then he... uh, the attacks continue. Ships are sunk. There's, of course, the amazing lighthouse sequence we talked about. Um, and there's another survivor of those attacks who's like, yeah, it's it was a dinosaur. And then um, uh, the paleontologist, um, it's, is it his daughter or was she just his assistant? I believe she was just an assistant. Okay, yeah, his yeah, assistant, she, she kind of is like, well... Um, you know, I feel like there's something to this. So she, you know, they get together and he looks over like hundreds of these uh, images of dinosaurs and he sees the one he's like, after looking at so many, he's like, it's this one, I swear. And it was the Redosaurus. And um, yeah, it's confirmed by the other survivor. And then um, the the paleontologist that they're talking to, um, it's like, okay, well, let's go check it out. And they lower him in this little submersible uh, into the ocean. And sure enough, well, first of all, he sees a sort of amusing fight between a shark and an octopus. <laughs> and then sure enough, yeah, that's he's, a bad, that's a bad scene. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, he sees the beast and he gets killed, which, um, uh, and, from there, it's like, okay, it's time to start taking this seriously, and the the Beast attacks New York. Um, <laughs> we'll get into this a little bit later, but yeah, the, for his first attack is a fishing market. Uh, and That's familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and he, there's just this amazing rampage sequence, and he goes ballistic in the city, and he's eating people, he's knocking buildings over, and... Um, and yeah, they're like, okay, well, I guess, yeah, it's real. And then the military has to devise things at one, at some point they, um, they kind of, uh, uh, try to get the beast to come out at night and kind of, um, uh, they, they end up shooting him and his blood, it turns out is toxic, which, um, you know, I think is a little bit of, you know, stand in for radiation poisoning and it's making people sick. And, uh, they, um, they come up with the solution to take him out. They need to shoot a radioactive isotope missile thing (laughs) into his wound (laughs) in his neck. And the beast comes out and he's, uh, rampaging on Coney Island. And, um, like he's in the middle of this big roller coaster and, um, 
they shoot him in the neck and he flails around and 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 dies and i i that i mean that's you know i mean the cliff notes version of it but that's the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms uh basically in a nutshell um so i mean i i've seen this movie a bunch of times um Nick, I think you probably have too. Matt, since you're, I think you said you saw it a long, long time ago, like when you were a kid, but being, this is probably the most fresh viewing for you. Um, yeah. What do you think of the beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Yeah, it was a, a very interesting experience. I mean, the, the all of the beast stuff is wonderful. I don't think you can say a negative thing about it. The, the creature, look, Retosaurus looks Amazing, which by the way, I always called Retosaurus, but that's because I butcher names constantly. Um, but th- this this particular monster is just really fabulous to, to watch. It's kind of a marvel, and especially when you see the rampage scene, and then when you get to the end, and he's within the roller coaster, and he and he's ripping apart stuff, um, and there's fire in the background, like all that stuff looks great, and it's just it's really wonderful just just to see that. I do think the film has kind of a bland cast. Like there's, it just kind of moves along. There's a, there's a big section like kind of right in the middle of the movie that I feel doesn't do a whole lot. You have that really bad shark versus octopus sequence, which we kind of alluded to. <laughs> um, it, but like there, there's a lot of fun to be had with this film. It has a lot of charm to it. Um, I, I do think again, that the weak link, if you're going to point to something, it's going to be, I think the cast is kind of just, eh. That's, just I mean, that, that's very, like, I've seen hundreds of, like, 50s monster movies. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's, it's a very like standard that. American 50s monster movie cast. And and I think that's a little bit why a lot of the time I like the Japanese approach, because especially, like, the, the Honda's films, for instance, you know, you see a little bit more of the these characters in their everyday lives, you know, at their jobs or just talking um and yeah the american types are just a little bit more broad strokes and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that but i i think it's a little bit less interesting and it's yeah it's a, it's very um kind of a vanilla approach nick how do you feel about it yeah the beast uh when you talked about uh, that scene earlier um of course i love a lot of scenes from this and i won't go any more into the lighthouse because uh we all know it's fantastic but that scene with the doctor and the dive bell that you were mentioning earlier the the professor uh elson yeah who uh doesn't believe um the the lead tom nesbitt character uh, at first no one believes him that he's seen the um the creature and he has to convince uh this professor to launch an expedition to look for uh the beast and uh when he decides to use that that dive bell and uh, dangle him down there like bait on a hook uh doesn't this remind you of another scene uh from another monster <laughs> film Gorko? yeah i was thinking the same thing actually <laughs> Which is the same director, Eugene Laurie. Um, so, and uh, didn't we learn that that's a bad idea to <laughs> dangle people in in something like that down there for the beast to just uh, look at you and turn you into lunch? <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, at least in Gorgo, um, you know the the hero survived. But in this case, he was a minor uh, secondary character, I should say. So he was he, he became the beast lunch. And as as he's approaching that uh, dive bell, it's like. How interesting, how interesting, how interesting he's going to eat us, isn't he? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I like how he's like, I like how like he's like, he's just standing there like he's drinking coffee. (laughs) 
Right. He's <laughs> like, yeah. he's giving a play by play commentary of his death. And like the thing's getting closer. I'm thinking, like, you're not freaking out at all. I mean, I would be panicking. And then he's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, there's, a, there's a lot of things that uh, you would think, uh, you know, looking at it maybe from a modern perspective, I don't know. Just this guy, uh, the, the, the character he portrays in there is just delighted with everything. I mean, he's even, uh, you know, uh, talking about going on his first holiday when uh, Nesbitt is bothering him with uh, essentially cryptozoology, which he's kind of laughing him off and saying, you know, I just don't have time to talk about this and there's no evidence for your claim. But yet, actually, the funny thing that, that turns him around is the fact that there's two witnesses um, I still, I still don't see how that convinced him that the creature was real. Um, if you watch the film, it seems like uh, they could have come up with a better, you know, amount of evidence. But this is a lower budget film, so uh, there was really no way of creating that. But you know, that kind of sticks out in my mind. Uh, the creature walking around with uh, radioactive blood, uh, creating the toxicity for the citizens around him. Um, there's another Eugene Laurie film. Um, the giant behemoth or the behemoth uh, th that's um, a lesser, you know, American creature film. I still enjoy watching it, but it's, uh, it suffers from the low budget um, issue. It is a stop motion animation creature. Um, yeah, Wilson. Wilson Ryan, yep. Yes. Did the visual effects for this film and uh, that film, the behemoth. And um, it's just very similar to the beast from 20,000 fathoms though the beast i feel you know uh, just did so much more uh i like this film that it's in black and white um and i kind of think it works well in black and white uh ray actually was um a big fan of visual effects in black and white because of his process two things about his process one black and white uh does add some believability to um the the animation that he was creating and the other is the projector he was using during that time could not rear project in color color required a, a larger process in order for the film to be developed first and uh, returned back in a day or two days where he could actually use um, the work print of the black and white to do his rear projection in his studio. So he enjoyed using black and white for that reason. But then, you know, uh, he's always, he was always against colorizing these films because he saw what colorizing looked like when they tried to, of course, colorize in the 1980s King Kong. And, uh, and I guess it, I never saw that, but I heard it was terrible. And uh, it is, it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> but the next two films were colorized by legend films. And if you watch those, you would almost thought they were shot in color. They were colorized so well, but I kind of think this one needs to stay kind of like the original Godzilla. I just think the, um, the atmosphere, um, the I creature, can't, I can't imagine that lighthouse scene in color. I don't want to. That's the thing. I, I, I like the, bla the, the the black and white photography really makes it what it is. It makes it it, it makes it a as atmospheric as it is. Yeah, and um, one more thing before um, I give it back to you guys is the actor Kenneth Toby, uh, your military uh, Colonel Jack Evans. In this, he's he's not the lead, but he's a secondary character. But uh, we're going to see him again in. Um, in uh, it came from beneath the sea, but he's also um, famous for the thing from another world, which was the uh, 
predecessor, prequel, whatever you want to call it, to um, the John Carpenter, The Thing. And, uh, yeah, he's the lead in that film as well. Another great classic American uh, monster film, um, if you get the chance to see it. But uh, he makes, uh, I, I think he's, he plays kind of the same character in all of the films, but at least he is, he's pretty well established in that. You, can, you know the actor I'm talking about, or at least the character I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, to get, I mean, just to get back to, uh, yeah, the the actual characters in the cast—they're a little on the bland side, but it's by far not the worst of you know what you would see <laughs> out of this type of movie. We may or may not get into that in a moment. But but uh, that being said, I think this movie. Something that I think it does better than another movie that we are probably going to be talking about in a moment is even with, you know, a more kind of basic, bland characters in the cast, it keeps things moving at a steady enough pace where, you know, the procedural aspect, you know, none of the steps to, you know, the, the investigation that he's on really take up too much time. It's always, okay, talk to this person then they talk to this person. It's not, you know, it doesn't linger too much. And then, yeah, once you get to the beast, like in the attacking the guy in the diving bell at what, maybe like the 50 minute mark or something. Once you get there, it's all money afterwards. Um, and yeah, the stop motion is just, even for this being his first like feature by himself, like it's just so fluid. And, you know, and, and I mean, Matt, you kind of talked about you know, in the in the finale, just the personality of this creature is it's, it's really just astounding how much personality that Ray would inject into these creatures. And I mean, it's been said by a lot of people that these creatures, like their performances by Ray, and I mean, and sometimes he would even take that to drastic measures. Like when he was making Mighty Joe Young, he was like spending hours at the zoo and. He went on like an all celery and carrot diet, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. and and you know, and and uh, some of Joe's mannerisms, like when he pounds the ground when he's upset, like that's something Ray noticed he used to do, like when he was feeling frustrated. So he really went to lengths to like inject these creatures with so much personality, and we're gonna get to a gr- probably the best example of that uh, uh, in a little bit um, with another movie we're talking about, but it's just. Any other animator who is doing a stop-motion monster movie, you know, they wouldn't take the time that Harryhausen or, or I mean, look at O'Brien, like, did to, like, have the creature, like, stop and stare at something. Or, you know, even if it's, like, you know, he scratches his face or something. Like, those are, like, those little extra bits of care that they put into these monsters that makes them seem so real... And like, like they are the like. I mean, talk about the human cast of these movies. Like, the real characters are the monsters, and it's the same complaint a lot of people have about like a lot of the kaiju movies. Well, the human stuff is just so bland and blah. But the monsters are treated like characters. I mean, um, and this is an example of that. And geez, especially in the finale when the beast is dying. You know, Ray often said that people said, like, he treats the deaths of his monsters like, you know, a tenor in an opera. And it's, yeah, it's so operatic. And I mean, and that extended into the kaiju, like, Tsuburaya's stuff, you know, and I think 
that the Tokusatsu guys really took a lot of notes from 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 these early uh, American monster movies, and um, and yeah, it's just. I mean, what more can you say? And, and uh, we might want to add, like, when you see in any of these movies, like, when the monster knocks a building down and, like, there's bricks falling, like, or a monster comes up out of the ground, all the little, all the debris and rubble is st- animated, stop motion. So, I mean, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, he bursts through a wall and there's just a bunch of bricks falling. Uh, out of the bu- off the building he crashes through each one of those bricks has to be suspended by wires and lowered frame by frame by frame while you're animating this creature doing all these intricate movements and it's painstaking and and geez you look at that now and it's like what kind of maniac like has the patience for this like and and ray often said like when, like, Ray Harryhausen was born to be Ray Harryhausen. There's nothing else in life he could have been doing. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, just the, the care and attention to detail that he exercised in this movie and in everything else that he, he's done is just amazing. One of the uh, best examples that I can think of... Um, at the end of the film, there's the the roller coaster around the beast is basically collapsing, and there's like like I, I think twenty pieces of like basically wood from the roller coaster falling into the flame, and I, and I it, that's all that's all you know animated, and I thought how long would that have taken him to do? Um, also of note, my favorite scene in the movie I think is probably when the beast eats that guy standing in the street. Yeah, the yeah when he eats the cop. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Great, great scene. Yeah. Well, well put together, actually. Yeah. Um, I think we lost Matt. So, <laughs> well, Nick, we we can keep the ball rolling. You know, we we don't we you know who who needs him? Uh, right. Yeah. He'll be he'll be back. Um, but yeah, he was referring to yeah the part where he eats the cop in the street, which is probably one of the most uh, like famous images from this. Like, I feel like that scene shows up like a lot when. Like, there's a movie and characters are watching TV or something, like, that. they might show that clip. I don't know, while we're keeping the ball rolling while we're waiting for Matt, um, let's uh, look at some similarities um, between the Beast and Godzilla. From what I understand, um, Tanaka hadn't seen the Beast, he just read that article or whatever on the plane. I'm sure, I'm sure he saw it after, the, after, you know, it came out in Japan or whatever, but... Um, Hey, I'm uh, back. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Well, we, we're just now getting into the similarities between Godzilla 54 and the Beast. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I know Tanaka didn't see it until probably after Godzilla had been released. Um, I mean, I don't know if he saw it at all, but I imagine he did. He had to have, I, I would think. But, um, but just, I mean, maybe ideas that he gleamed from reading that article with that synopsis or whatever, but there are the similarities. I mentioned uh, the Retosaurus has the toxic blood, and similar to Godzilla leaving the radioactive fallout uh, behind him. Um, and, of course, the A-bomb test being what kicks it all off. Um, other than that, though, I mean, there's really not that much. You could stretch it a little bit, probably, and say, you know, uh, they defeat the beast by 
using this weapon that's one of a kind and everything. But the the sacrifice isn't really there like it is in Godzilla. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any else? Anything else that you want to weigh in on similarities between the Beast and Fifty Four? Oh, yeah, um, I mean, they 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 yeah, do try to stop him with um, the electrical things. What are they? Electrical grid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They do they do try to like use electricity uh to like deter the Redosaurus. But. Yeah. Well uh, I'll take one real quick. Uh well, actually two. Uh the weapons of course are human weapons, machine guns and what have you, uh, you know, having no effect on uh the beast and they at least offer an explanation in um Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms is they said, you know, his skull must be six inches thick, you know, so obviously uh, you know, our weapons here are just uh are just not good enough. Um, but you know, they do wound him of course. So then we get to that point of saying, yeah, there's the wound, um, you know, fire into the wound. So there's, there's that to say that Godzilla's skin is so thick, of course, that his uh, weapons, you know, he's just pretty much, they're just bouncing off of him and, uh, you know, these machine gun fire and everything else they launch at him. The other thing, and a lot of uh, classic monster films will do this, this formula of the monster begins as an elusive creature. Uh, does he exist or doesn't he? Is he in the imagination or hallucinations of certain characters who have witnessed him? Um, if they've even survived his attacks, um, you know, because this creature uh, does uh, appear before uh, Nesbit, and um, and of course he's considered a fool, a freak, a you know, is uh, off his rocker. He he just imagined it. He's hallucinating, whatever. And of course he, uh, um, so the creature is still out there and elusive. Everyone doesn't believe him. Godzilla. Similarly, some people have witnessed him. Ships are disappearing in the in the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's like okay, what's going on here? Could it have been you know simple? Uh, just a mechanical failure, crew, what have you, uh, human error, uh, weather, or is it a giant sea serpent? Well, usually that's not the first thing we go to. Um, so there's some similarities there with Godzilla as well, until we get, you know, to the closer to the climax of the film, or at least the midway point of the film and on to the end where we get constant monster action. And of course, um, the cat's out of the bag. There is a creature that's really out there and really um, going to cause us some destruction. And, uh, and we've got to make some decisions on, on how to take him out. So similarities there with Godzilla. Um, you've got it there. I do see in the footnotes of 98 and I definitely have a comment to say about oh, yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Nick, let's, uh, I actually think it's a little more fun to talk about the similarities between this and Godzilla 98. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got um, one comment. Well, uh, well, yeah. I mean, it it's almost uncanny, really. Uh, and, I mean, it's no secret now that, you know, when Devlin and Emmerich were writing the, the 98 movie, you know, they watched a bunch of Godzilla movies and they were like, eh, I'm not really feeling feeling it. I, I don't really get it. And, you know, they, they said they prefer, um, like, uh, stuff like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and some of the Harryhausen stuff. Like, there's a scene in the movie where some looters are taking a TV that's playing It Came From Beneath the Sea on it. But, uh, but yeah, you watch this movie and you're like, wow, they really cribbed a lot. Especially, like, pretty much the whole thing up until the Madison Square Garden stuff is so similar that 
it, it, it well i like for example the first attack is a fish market um yep. and and like it, it even has like in in the beast there's the, the part where the retosaurus goes up to a tall building and he goes through the building and comes out the other side and there's a part like that in the in godzilla where godzilla co- goes through the bu- building and comes out the other side and swats down a helicopter um and, and like i was especially like that scene you watch it and you're like wow like this is the same exact same scene almost Yes, yes. And honestly, my comment is, um, you know, I've kind of said it, uh, you know, if you take Godzilla 98 and you take uh, all, re- all um, if you unthink that it's Godzilla and you rename it a remake of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, then you watch it again. You watch it and you realize, oh, yeah, it's not Godzilla at all. It's really just a remake of the Beast. You can watch it and maybe, just maybe, uh, no. No, no, yeah, I, still, I know it's still I, bad. I, still don't I, like I, I can't I, say it if I do. <laughs> I, I hear people say that all the time. Well, if your premise is not Godzilla, it's actually not bad, and it's like it's still a bad movie either way. It's a bad, but bad um, movie. it just isn't. It's it, the, if you were to even remake it as from uh, and call it Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, all of the comedy they tried to throw in there, the Jurassic tried, Park st- uh, knockoff yeah. stuff, like that stuff would still be there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trying to make us laugh with that's a lot of fish i'm sorry i'm just not laughing oh no also very similar is the scene where um in godzilla where he comes out at night it's that scene in the rain and like he's surrounded by the tanks and they start firing on him it's very similar to the scene in the beast where he comes out at night and the, the scene where they shoot the the missile and wound him like it's a very similar scene and yeah, the the fish market attack though is like, wow! They just they lifted they flat out lifted parts of the Retosaurus attack and just plugged it into Godzilla, and it, it, it was like you watch it and you're almost like, wow! It's almost shameless. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 the even, same scene. It's the- <laughs> Yeah, even the uh, the attack on the ship out at sea. Um, I'm not sure if they in Beast it was considered fishing boats, but uh, if a fishing boat, but you know he literally pushes this the boat uh, hull into the sea, similar to the '98 Godzilla that pulls three fishing boats into the sea. So right, yeah, yeah. and it's it's the same thing. It's like at night, and yeah, that's when Godzilla pulls the three ships down. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yeah. It's it's. Yeah, they they tried to make the same movie, man. They just made it. <laughs> they really did, Matt. When you watched it, did any of that click with you, or are you just kind of like realizing it as we're having this conversation? No, no, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. Uh, remember, I only seen the Beast like yeah. once. So. But like, especially but I- it, the one that got gets me still is when the the Retosaurus crashing through the building and coming out the other end. Oh, for sure. That, it's, that's it's they they flat out stole <laughs> from the from the beast i was going to mention actually uh just came to mind godzilla raids again where they're looking through the dinosaur books to have the the pilots um oh yeah you know yeah it's the same, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the same features uh, yeah yeah yep. that they saw so i i want somebody out there to create a meme of uh the professor nesbitt and the woman uh, looking through the creatures and discarding one seeing ankylosaurus killer of the living <laughs> A new book came out, and we learned so much. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, no, it was, it's definitely this one, the Retosaurus. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, um, yeah, yeah, perfect, you know, little well, connection. Um, so, I mean, my closing comments on the, on the beast is, um, I mean, by modern standards, it, it has its issues and it's not perfect, but for the time, I mean, there was nothing like it. Uh, I mean, you had King Kong, but I mean, the Beast was kind of uh, push it, from a technical standpoint, pushing effects to the next level. And um, yeah, it's it's a gorgeous looking movie, and those effects are wonderful. And I mean, the things Ray did, like I said, I mean, everything from animating falling bricks to you know with his creatures, he did what a lot of stop motion animators don't do, and he would put like uh, little airbags in them to make them breathe, so the beast breathes, and it feels a lot, it feels very real. Um, and to do that, he used like those things you get at the doctor where they do your blood pressure, and he would like pump it up frame by frame as he was animating. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even with all that being said, uh, it, it, by modern standards, I do think a lot of it still does hold up, that the last 30, 40 minutes is really spectacular, and it, it, it sends you out on a high, even with, you know, you know your, your kind of bland characters and everything. So um, I give this uh, uh, four um, uncredited Roland Emmerich remakes out of five. Uh, I'm at a solid three and a half. Okay, Mainly that's fair. The, that's fair. the, mon- yeah. the monster is awesome. The cast is kind of Yeah, I'd agree. I'm definitely probably uh, going to agree with uh, uh, the four, only because I like to measure films and rewatchability, and I find myself watching this film um, quite a bit. Uh, rewatching this film. Yeah, quite this is a bit. one that I can go back to pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, good amount of time too. It's a good length. It's not too long. Yeah. So moving on from the Beast, um, it was a big hit. Critically and financially, um, and it, it still remains kind of a popular classic movie to this day. It was the, the first of that trend of atomic age monsters, including Godzilla and the, the kaiju stuff in Japan. And um, Dietz wanted a follow-up, and Ray pitched him a few ideas, including one called The Elementals, about the, like, these giant bat creatures. And, um, you know, a lot of things like they were trying to get him to do it in 3D, which would require two cameras at the time. And... Just all, all kinds of reasons why they couldn't get the financing for that and other ideas. And um, around this time, he actually got an offer from uh, 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 Columbia to do the effects on the giant claw, which uh, he passed on because he felt like it was a little too similar to some ideas he already wanted to do. And um, I think it's safe to say he dodged a bullet there. Uh, he did, totally. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is apparently nobody told like the cast that Ray wasn't doing it. So... When they were making the movie, the cast thought they were in like, yeah, this is going to be a Harryhausen movie. It's going to look great. And then when they, they went, saw stock puppet birds, yeah, and then, <laughs> and then they went to the premiere. And when they saw it, like the 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 actors, like just like they buried their head hand, head in their hands, and like they they snuck out of the theater. They were like, this is like, embarrassing. I can't do this. And we'll get to the giant claw one day, but uh, right now I think it's time to go to 1955's It Came From Beneath the Sea. So, um, Nick, lay us, lay us on, uh, on uh, the, I guess, the, the origin of, uh, of this, this, this film. 
Sure. The background of it came beneath the sea. Um, you know, we've got a, a great hit uh, for Harryhausen and Beast. And so uh, what next? Is he is he done? Does he end in a high note? Uh, definitely not. He's um, He's got this film that he's going to be working on here soon with Charles Schneer. We'll get to that in a second. But, um, you know, stop motion is still an expensive process. It wasn't being taken as seriously uh, by Hollywood because it is a very long and expensive process. So, um, and he saw how Hollywood had treated Wills O'Brien. And uh, so he really kept working. So he even kept working on his fairy tale, uh, you know, and children's, uh, you know, shorts and, and made another fair, fairy tale uh, with King Midas. Okay, so he kept he kept working that way. Um, worked on the tortoise and the hare, you know. But uh, while working on that, he met up with him, Charles Schneer, and Charles Schneer will be the beginning of a great career um, into the future for Ray Harryhausen. These two um, just hit it off amazingly well. And they um, they just do so well in the rest of in, of, of Harryhausen and, and the two of them together. Charles Schneer doesn't get enough credit as far as a, a producer that gets Harryhausen the right work and um, you know producing these films that uh, end up again. Uh, we are continuing to talk about them even though at the time they were considered B quote unquote movies. Uh, these films. Um, you know, are still remembered and reprinted several times, whereas some of the A films have fallen into obscurity. So uh, with Charles Schneer, uh, we've got It Came From Beneath the Sea, um, a story about a giant octopus, um, and we get the director. Actually, the director, I remember they talked about the director kind of got brought in late in the project of this, but um, Robert Gordon uh, was brought in for this film. And so this film really was... Uh, just an idea uh, from a producer saying, I want to see a giant octopus uh, tear down the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you make a film around that? And they did, and it became it came from beneath the sea. We've got um, in, the, in the leading role, Kenneth Toby from Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and Thing from Another World, um, starring as Commander Pete Matthews in this. Um, and we've got a... a, a cast of other characters that I really haven't seen in any of these other films uh, but Kenneth Toby at least is one of those faces that I've seen um, kind of reoccurring in some of these classic monster films and so yeah um, the synopsis of it uh, Matt if you want to go into it uh, you know I'll, and I, I'm going to keep my opinions uh, maybe till the end of this because yeah I got a few things to say about it but yeah <laughs> sorry Matt <laughs> Uh, so, so basically, the movie uh, starts off with a nuclear submarine in the Pacific Ocean. Um, the, it is commanded by Pete Matthews, and they happen to run across a blip on the sonar. Suddenly, the submarine comes to a screeching halt. They're not aware, but they're basically being attacked by a giant octopus. They manage to escape, um, and they return to Pearl Harbor. But in the meantime, they find some tissue from the creature attack. Um, not un they don't know what it is. They don't really know what happened. And so they approach a uh, team of marine biologists. One is Leslie Joyce. The other is John Carter. Um, they identify the, the tissue as basically being that of a giant cephalopod, giant octopus. Of course, the military, you know, they do what they always do and they laugh it off. And uh, the marine biologists basically surmise that the octopus was forced from its habitat uh, by a hydrogen bomb testing. And 
that made the, the octopus radioactive. And of course, also that drives off its natural food supply. So what the octopus is now doing is it's searching for food. It should be noted, um, and we'll talk about this more at length, I'm sure, that the relationship between Pete Matthews and Leslie, uh, the, the commander of the sub and the marine biologist, is very awkward for me. And uh, I, I think we'll go into detail about it. But they have these romantic exchanges throughout the film um, that, that are basically, you know, you have the, they happen in the beginning of the film, the middle and the, in, the, in the end. And it's, it's very, uh, I found those difficult to sit through. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, we now then then we get a string of you know typical Japanese uh, fishing fleet disappears. There's a boat attack. There's a, a boat that's attacked by uh, a French boat that's attacked, and they actually find survivors. The survivors tell their story. Nobody believes them. And then um, the Leslie she actually broadcasts over like an open mic the story of one of the guys telling it very passionately. And suddenly the military all of a sudden becomes convinced that hey there actually is a giant creature. Uh, the giant creature eventually attacks the, the coast of Oregon. Um, people started saying there's reports of like a, a sea serpent and they go to investigate. The creature actually shows up for the first time and then kind of quickly disappears. Um, eventually it makes its way to the infamous Golden Gate Bridge scene. What they do there is they actually have a net. Uh, for some reason that's electric, you know, it, it has electric current running through it. I have no idea why that is or where that idea came from, but <laughs> the net basically serves to, to make the creature more angry. So what they have to do is they have to rush to shut the net off. And then in the, in the process, the golden gate bridge is basically torn to pieces. Um, they then, they then come up with this idea to shoot a torpedo from the submarine into the octopus and only detonate it once it's inside the creature. And that would completely kill it. Uh, the problem is when they do it, um, the, the, the sub is actually grabbed by the octopus, so they can't detonate because they're going to end up killing themselves. So they send out a diver, which is the captain. Um, he gets he tries to plant some explosives on the octopus, but he's in the, he's actually hit by one of the tentacles. So then the other marine biologist, uh, Jack, um, he ends up shooting the octopus in the eye with like a harpoon or something, which causes the, the octopus to release the sub. They blow up the torpedo, and it kills the creature. And that's basically how the story ends right there. So what what you guys uh, think about this movie? <laughs> um, well, I guess I'll uh, I'll go first. Um, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of this one. I never have been, you know, even when I was younger. Um, and it's no, it's not a slight against Ray or the effects. You know, they're 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 wonderful, and he really does do what you can to inject personality into an octopus. And like he said, a challenge was how do I give a fake octopus more personality than a real octopus? Cause a real octopus, you know, they don't show anything. So even the tentacles, he kind of gave their own, like he did what he could, you know, there's a part where like it crashes through a window and it almost look, it looks like it's sniffing around in this building, maybe for food. <laughs> Um, and that was all. That was Ray's kind of homage to the scene in the uh, the Lost World, where the brontosaurus crashes its head through the 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 building uh, window. But um, but yeah, it's so we. I think we all really enjoy Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. But the things we were complaining about it, uh, basically, are dialed way up to eleven in this. In that. Not only is the cast bland, but they're irritating, um, especially the lead actor. 
who is just this sec- raging sexist, like, <laughs> even by 50s standards, he's a little rough it's around raping. the edges. Yeah, uh, like, it's one step away from Sean Connery's James Bond. <laughs> um uh and yeah i mean i've geez i've seen this movie so many times i've probably watched this movie from beginning to end maybe five times including theatrically um the detroit institute it's funny matt while you when you dropped off we were talking about you know the kind of rivalry between the fan bases more than anything between like well i well we were talking more about ray we'll get into fan bases, but we were talking about you know the stop motion versus tokusatsu and um, it's interesting how really well they actually play as a double bill. The Detroit Institute of Arts did a whole summer, uh, where once every month in the summer, they would, they did a double bill of a Toho movie and a Harryhausen movie, and they were all on brand new 35 millimeter prints. And this one was actually paired up with Gojira. Um, and, uh, gee, but yeah, my point is I've seen this movie a lot, including theatrically on a gorgeous print and as recent as like two three weeks ago for this podcast and i struggle to remember a lot of it because so much of it is like nothing happening it's people sitting around talking about well what it's those procedural moments from the beast only they go on and on whereas the beast was smart enough to kind of keep things moving at a decent enough clip that it, it didn't get boring but this is like is people talking about the octopus, and then you get, he sinks the ship, and then it's really a build-up to the last maybe ten minutes or so, and that's when it actually does get pretty awesome, but the Beast, it's like the whole last 45 minutes is awesome, and this is like, yeah, the last ten minutes you get some cool stuff, and the rest is gibberish, and um, yeah, it's just irritating characters and just boring scientific jibber-jabber. Um... And yeah, in a really weird sexist character who's in a a relationship that where I don't know, I could see it getting pretty pretty rough for that woman. I want to chime in for a minute, and then I'll let Nick loose because the whole time I'm watching this, I thought to myself, if I had ever treated my Sarah that way, if I ever treated her when we were dating, like first of all, she would have kneed me in the balls, and then she would have punched me in the face because there's a scene where he corners. Uh, where Pete corners Leslie, like there, he 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 basically says, "Hey, come over here." Where they go to a secluded room, and they're talking, and he basically corners her in this room, and he gets so close to her, and like basically doesn't let her leave. And then when she tries to leave, he like grabs her arm to the point where she has to stop moving and looks at him. And then they sort of, you know, they make these excuses throughout the film. Well, hey, you know, all Navy boys are like this. I'm like, no. I mean, it just it made me about as uncomfortable as I could have been watching a movie, honestly. Like, I couldn't just, I couldn't get past it. And, well, um, remember the, the first time we're introduced to the two other main characters? They're in hazmat suits, and he is too. And they're, like, looking at stuff, and she takes the, her, uh, like, the, the mask part off, and he's like, Buh? A woman? A, a scientist? A, what? <laughs> well, the... There's this line that the very like last line of the film or one of the last lines is he actually asked her to like marry him out of the blue. And he looks at uh, Pete looks at the other character and he's like, hey, Doc, you were right about this new breed of woman because the guy says there's a new breed of woman who is essentially self-sufficient 
And they're, they're talking about this in the movie. I'm just like, oh my god, oh, make it stop. <laughs> it's I, I it's bizarre. It's it's really. I mean, guys, like it's really rapey, and I I just <laughs> I couldn't get that part. I couldn't get past that part. Aside from the characters being kind of bland, like that element really took me out of the film. My my wife actually kind of watched part of it and was like, "What is going on in this movie?" So anyway, uh, Nick, I will yeah. introduce. I know you have some thoughts. So I was going to just real quick, uh, just to jump off that uh, that awkward relationship between the two characters. It's almost as if they took the uh, the the Kong uh, scene between the King Kong nineteen thirty three scene between uh, uh, John Driscoll and Ann Darrow, where out of the blue, you know, he's at one point he's kind of de- demeaning her. You know, woman on a ship is bad yeah. luck. It's that scene for an hour and a half. (laughs) Exactly. It's almost exaggerated (laughs) from that, uh, you know, to to the next level, because it's not only just uh, his treatment of her at first, um, you know, uh, as very poor, then it turns into out of the blue suddenly, hey, you know what? I think I love you. And where did that come from? And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of like that that relationship to the next degree, except for the fact that in this, uh, in, in Kong, you know, you still at least see, um, uh, Driscoll being a hero. And I don't really quite get that out of, uh, uh, Toby's character, not a hero to the heroine, not the, the hero to the, the, uh, the leading lady. He's really just a hero to humanity, I guess, you know, he jumps in the submarine, jumps, uh, into the, to the wetsuit and, you know, does what he can and taking out the, the creature. Um, but yeah, I, I, I look at it this way. Harryhausen did great the human character story, you can really kind of, uh, you called it earlier what it is, uh, bird, uh, procedural scenes. Um, oh, yeah. I go to the next level to call it filler. I mean, <laughs> it really is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, gee, I mean, I know this movie, that, geez, this movie must have cost like $5. I mean, there's so much stock footage of just stuff, you know. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do understand to an extent, you know, they're, you know, doing the best they can under the circumstances, and um, the octopus isn't the most, like I said, it's not the most interesting monster, but I think Ray did everything he could to get it, you know, a little bit of personality. Like I said about the Retosaurus, more than any other animator would. Um, uh, And, uh, but I, you know, I mean, it it sounds like we're all kind of on the same page and just kind of thinking this movie is really... I'll just say it, it's, it's a boring, boring movie, but let's talk about what does work, and I think um, the highlight is definitely the Golden, uh, Golden Gate Bridge sequence, which is just a great destruction sequence, and then when he, um, the octopus kind of comes onto the land and attacks, and, you know, there's that great scene where there's these people running away from it, and it reaches out its tentacle and just, like, crushes them and smears them against the pavement. <laughs> Like that's that's all that's yeah that's all awesome stuff. Um, and the thing is, there's just not enough of it. Like I said, the beast you get a lot of really amazing sequences with this amazing monster, and and here you really get maybe eight to ten minutes of stuff. Um, that stuff is really good, but it's eight to ten minutes, and the rest of it really just isn't that interesting. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, okay. 
Sorry, Skype. Yeah, the the scene where you were talking about the tentacle crushing all the people. I remember seeing this on Monster Vision in black and white um, as a kid and thinking, you know, even as a kid, I was thinking, why are those people, you know, they know the tentacles coming at them. They're all running in a straight line and they all get smashed. Couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Serpentine, serpentine, something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they were <laughs> and everyone's running just a muck. It's like, stay away from the ocean. How far inland can he possibly get? I know it's San Francisco, and I know it's very uh, densely populated, but, uh, you know, it's not like you can't get away from him. He's he's still even an octopus that only has six legs, not eight, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was a, a budgetary yeah, uh, trivia, a bit of trivia there for, yep. you know, Ray Ryazan to and make it easier to animate. That, and it, that is like, if you, have you ever wondered why does Mickey Mouse have, I think he has three fingers or four fingers? You ever oh. wonder why? That's why, because you save on animation costs. It's, that's why a lot of cartoon characters have like four fingers and stuff. Um, but yeah, Ray, Ray's even said he was like, we're lucky we got six. You know, he was like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the budget for this thing was so tiny that he was like, at one point in the middle of it, I was afraid I was just going to have to keep subtracting tentacles. <laughs> yeah, and end up with a tripod, I think he said famously. Yeah, yeah. and I think that... I was yeah. going to say, I think if I wasn't so seething about the whole, uh, all the terribleness of, of Pete's character, I, I might have paid more attention. Because, like, honestly, I didn't notice... And then, like, I had to think about it and go back and look. I'm like, oh, he kind of yeah, did a good. Only, he t- he kind of did a good job of like hiding it. Like, he did a only, wonderful job. Yeah, yeah. Well, you only you only see it wrapping around buildings in certain shots, and it's not enough to really betray the fact that it only has. Yeah, he he said he tried his best to like not not really show show it a lot, like in full frame. So, um. I mean, do you guys, do you have, Matt, what are your thoughts on the actual destruction scenes? I mean, what little there is. Yeah, I mean, they're okay. I, I think, I think the issue too is, is the water, like the water hitting the octopus and the Golden Gate. Like it, it sort of took me out of it. And when he attacks the ship, like it just feels and looks kind of, and I, I think the, the bigger issue for this film is kind of the, the monster is not that interesting as we mentioned before. The destruction though is pretty cool. Like pulling apart the bridge, there's. Um, there's a lot of really nice, nice details. When the bridge breaks apart, you see like um, the like the the seal wiring that would hold the bridge and the cement together. Like you see that stuff come out. So there's a lot of intricate details that I really appreciate that he put into this film to make it visual. Like it, it just looks great. Um, but I mean, it's I really I, guys, I, I just hate this movie. I just hate it. It's really not that... It's really... Like, out of his filmography, this is probably the one that I just never have the desire to really ever go back to. Like, it's just... yeah, Like, yeah, it's just, it's boring. It's it, like, like you guys said, it's filler. So, honestly, um... I mean, that, that eight minutes really is good, but there's so much other stuff that's just... Ugh. I'm going to give this uh, one and a half Raging Sexists out of five. <laughs> uh, Nick, what, what is your rating? Oh, uh, wow. Um, rewatchability is very low for me, So, uh, but I will say to give uh, this film a little credit, and it, this is actually something for you, Matt, to create kind of a therapy group for those who, who can't watch it because of that, uh, <laughs> because of... Uh, 
uh, Commander Pete and, uh, and and his treatment of women. Watch it with commentary. You don't even hear his lines. <laughs> it's pretty good to listen to Phil Tippett, Dennis Murin talking with Ray Harryhausen, uh, asking him how he did things, and you don't even they don't even talk about the human scenes really at all because they're talking to the master right there. Talk about his visual effects, his process, his story. It's really actually pretty interesting. It makes the film better to watch with commentary, especially when he talks about the golden gate bridge, the fact that uh, he made it out of lead, which is a soft metal that can bend. And uh, that's how he made that effect. And of course it holds its form, um, you know, under the hot lights and all that. So he was able to, uh, you know, make that effect convincing enough that people, uh, in San Francisco, we're concerned that it would uh, give the city a bad, uh, it would put the city in a bad light, like our bridge isn't strong enough. Uh, and somehow that that was uh, something what? they wanted to suppress. But two, I'll give it two. Uh, man, I, I, you know what? I don't even know what to rate this. I'm like struggling between a one or one and a half. I gave the Godzilla anime, which I hated, like I think a one and a half. I'm like, I don't know which one of those is worse. So I'm just, I'm just going to go one and a half raging sexist. And, and guys, I, I, I just, I don't, I can't remember the last time that I was this uncomfortable watching a movie. <laughs> I really, and, and, and like, it's, there's so much stuff going on between those two characters that like, it's just cringy the entire time. Um, um all right. Well, Matt, uh, uh, well, we talked about the sixtopus already. Uh, um, lay, lay a couple more trivia bits on us. Cause I know we, we, we found some stuff that was kind of fun. Well, Nick touched on uh, the fact that they, they <laughs> the people of San Francisco worried about the bridge. They actually had to sneak cameras onto the bridge to film the footage without the yeah, city knowing. Yeah, they, they drove like back and forth on the bridge uh, like in a truck to get the footage because the city didn't want them filming there. And then when the city found out, they tried to set these like strict parking parameters, and they're like, "Nah, we 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 got you know we got what we need." <laughs> and I mean that that's real, honest to god, independent guerrilla filmmaking, <laughs> you know. So yeah, you got to respect that. Um, uh, it actually reminds me of uh, Shiro Honda with the with the original Godzilla. He was uh, going out out there and shooting the the self defense force as they were just driving, doing their routines. Um, they weren't supposed to be filming that, but uh, he was out there just in cars and trucks and whatever else, just filming them as they were leaving their bases, driving down highways. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that kind of guerrilla filmmaking, uh, you know, that Honda did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, also of note, it, Pixar's Monster Inc. Monsters Inc. I like that movie um, a lot, by the way. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the, the, the characters go on a date to a restaurant called Harryhausen's, which features none other than an octopus sushi chef that only has six tentacles, which is pretty cool. Um, the film was another financial and critical success. So How Schneer, is this a critical success? I don't know. I don't. I don't <laughs> I, Schneer quickly met uh, with Ray, discussed another project, and that would eventually become Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I'm excited about that one, by the way, because I saw when I was watching um, one of the documentaries. Um, or actually just the interview with Tim Burton, there are some snippets of that film, and I've actually never seen it, and I was like, this looks like a lot of fun, yeah. so I'm looking yeah, forward I, and to it. I'm, I'm surprised, Tim, I, I know that feature you're talking about, Tim Burton really didn't say much, maybe he was just being modest, but yeah, Mars Attacks is a total homage to Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Um, yes. 
but Ray, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say Ray would next, uh, basically he would collaborate with uh, Willis O'Brien again on a dinosaur segment of the animal world documentary, um, which we're going to talk about uh, both earth versus the flying saucers and the animal world documentary on future episodes. Um, so we have 20 million miles to earth. You know, this, I gotta say, this is my favorite Ray Harryhausen, uh, hands down. This film uh, really just hits the mark for me. I'll get into the review, obviously, later, but I, I just got to throw a, uh, you know, a little plug there. I did actually um, guest on a podcast with Tim Price and um, uh, on uh, Alan O.W. Barnes. He's the illustrator for Tim Price's Big in Japan book. He has a podcast, and we both were guests on there speaking about 20 million miles to Earth because they wanted uh, Alan wanted to know what I'd like to talk about, and I said, well, obviously we could talk about Godzilla, but something else I have always been a real fan of is this film 20 million miles to Earth. Have you seen it? No. And I said, stop what you're doing and go watch it now. Um, and so... To get into the backstory of this, uh, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, we talked about that would be the year, I want to say, 1956 for Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. And this film uh, is 1957, very next year. So he's, uh, you know, similar to the Tokusatsu films in some ways. Some Sometimes they were one film a year. So uh, Harryhausen's staying busy. And uh, this was an original Ray Harryhausen story. Um, this is the chance he got to work with Charles Schneer and actually uh, putting together the treatment and all the way to the script of this film. So um, it began with this idea of the, the creature uh, that Ray had uh, put together, which will be called the Emir, although the name Emir, spelled Y-M-I-R, is not ever mentioned in the film. Um, it's just referred to as a creature essentially. So, but it did originate at that, the project he pitched to Jack Dietz to follow up from the beast of 20,000 fathoms. Uh, it was about this, uh, you know, this emir we talked about, which has a, a background in Norse mythology actually, but, uh, it's going to come from the, the name comes from that, but the creature is an alien. So he is not from earth. He is from Venus. Oh, 20 million miles to Earth. And coincidentally, actually, uh, whether they knew that in 1957 or not, but the, um, the Earth's distance to Venus at its closest point is about 23 million miles. So they got it right. Uh, great. Awesome. So, um, but it started with the idea that the spaceship that we sent to Venus uh, crash lands in Chicago. Um, this is definitely science fiction because we're not going to be sending any a manned space mission to Venus. It's too hot, so the surface is molten and full of uh, gases. It's just uh, not a very hospitable place. But uh, So this idea that they recover something from the planet Venus, something goes wrong and they crash land, started in the idea of Chicago, and they wanted to see the creature destroy Chicago. Um, but Ray Harryhausen wanted to uh, go to Italy. He knew that he really had a desire to uh, see Italy, visit there, and he didn't have the money to. So they re-scripted it um, for that very reason, so that he could see Rome. And uh, so they set the film in Italy for that very reason, so Ray could actually visit there. So, um, so yeah, he, he started with this idea of the Emir. It began as a, a Cyclops creature um, that got and ended up ditching uh, the Cyclops idea, but we did get a you know Cyclops later in a Harryhausen film, so uh, it's not like any of these these ideas. Too many ideas, you know, just ended up on the uh, 
you know, on the cutting room floor, he, um, he went with this creature that was kind of reptilian humanoid, if you will. And so we could, we could gain some sympathy for that creature and maybe even relate somewhat to that creature. Um, as we see him grow, as we see him interacting with humans and animals, uh, in Italy. So, um, this was to hammer home the theme of the film, which is to kind of show how uh, maybe the treatment of humans and animals are, you know, what would a creature like this go through if he were taken out of his element? And it's not like he's even under, he doesn't even know his element. He was, uh, you know, he's born here on earth uh, through this, this egg, if you would, will call it that. And he's, so he's out of his element and, every way trying to figure out where he is and a very misunderstood character uh you might relate it to king kong but actually i've heard a better analogy recently that it it actually relates better to et in a lot of ways since this is an alien of course out of his element um we have the director nathan juran uh, you'll remember him if you're a mystery science theater fan like i am as the director of the deadly mantis <laughs> uh, yeah. this film stars william hopper also from the Deadly Mantis. And uh, so uh, you've got, and I like the Deadly Mantis for its own reasons too, but uh, it wasn't a Harryhausen special effects film, but makes for great mystery science theater fodder. That's a great, that's a great episode, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I, I watched that over and over and over again, but um, they're not going to touch 20 million miles to Earth. Uh, this film just, it hits all the marks for me. Um, but Nathan Duran. Uh, did work with uh, Harryhausen in the future on First Man in the Moon, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and uh, you know, and, and Duran had his other films like Deadly Mantis, we mentioned, and Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. So um, his career uh, took off as a result of uh, collaboration with Harryhausen as well. So, um, but that's kind of the background of this film. A real quick synopsis because I definitely want to talk about how much I just appreciate this film, but, you know, it begins with, uh, you know, somewhere in Italy, you know, and the, I'm guessing the Mediterranean Sea, it's a coastal city, and uh, this spaceship, uh, rocket ship, single stage rocket ship, um, crash lands. It's single stage because this is 1957, we really hadn't uh, gotten to that point of understanding, you know, the multi-stage rockets that we have that uh, are the more practical way for any kind of space travel. Uh, we This wasn't even the time of the space race. So the very early idea of, of, of space travel, and we're going to, you know, just a neighboring planet here uh, of Venus, and they return. Um, since it's crash landed, we've got some of these uh, men out there and just uh, essentially, you know, just uh, rowboats, canoes, uh, who want to go in and save the day. They've got a they've got a young child, a little Italian boy with them that's uh, helping out, and uh, they recover two members of the crew, and um, one of them ends up not making it. But our lead man, William Hopper, who plays Colonel Robert Calder, uh, does make it uh, while they're in the hospital recovering from their their uh, crash landing 20 million miles to earth the um, ship must have had some debris uh, pushed out into the ocean and one of those is a canister that has something some gelatin like uh, substance in it and the young boy um, I'm trying to see, remember his name uh, Pepe is the character's name played by uh, Bart Braverman um, w- finds this and sells it to a local zoologist and uh, 
Zuala just doesn't realize what he has in his hands at first until he, you know, really starts looking at it and realizes that uh, this is this is probably something more <laughs> more valuable than the little bit of change he pulled out of his pocket to uh, give the boy for it. Um, so he pours this gelatin-like substance out of it, which turns out to be the Emir's egg, and it hatches. Um, as uh, the story goes along, it, it's a small, probably eight-inch, I don't know if you'd say that, uh, size um, creature. And um, and when you see it interacting with uh, the zoologist and his daughter, um, who's coincidentally also the nurse that's uh, nursing uh, William Hopper's character back to health, um, they, they, uh, they cage the creature. It grows exponentially very fast and it gets out of its cage runs amok and as the story goes along william hopper is working with american authorities to capture the creature try and keep it classified but that doesn't last long um and uh as they're going along it's continuing to grow they do end up capturing it with a net uh, that's dropped from a helicopter and he's um, uh, incapacitated by uh, electric shock and um you know, as they're going along, trying to uh, study him, study the emir, and he's very large at this point. Um, an accident happens in the laboratory, and he's awoken, runs amok, gets in a fight with an elephant, and this is actually in the city of Rome where this happens. And uh, after the elephant fight, and he defeats the elephant, um, there's actually a uh, uh, kind of a battle scene between the, the military and the emir creature around the Roman Colosseum and other Roman structures along the way. He destroys a few of the, I think the Temple of Venus would uh, coincidentally, or was it the Temple of Saturn? Something to that effect um, was destroyed by him. And uh, a portion of the Colosseum took a few hits too from some of the tank fire and the creature uh, does end up falling to its death in the nice King Kong fashion. We feel sorry for him. And, uh, and so we, uh, we as humanity have to deal with the fact that we uh, we had the chance to communicate with an alien and uh, we killed him because we misunderstood him. Um, I find it interesting that as he's going along, the creature, the Emir creature, uh, encounters uh, animals along the way, like a, a lamb. And the lamb is not phased by him. He's not phased by the lamb. He doesn't try to eat it or kill it or anything. The only time that the creature actually becomes aggressive is when someone confronts him like the humans and like uh in one case a dog actually attacks him so and that's another fight that's uh, that's a fight that's done in silhouette uh, kind of like the uh silhouetting of the beast from 20,000 fathoms or a really cool technique uh Harryhausen threw in there so um you know kind of the the king kong story done with an alien creature and uh yeah I, obviously you know i enjoy this film i'd like to get your guys' thoughts it was a lot of fun. I really liked it. The Emir is a great, uh, great creature design. Um, you know, Harry Hausen said uh, in an interview that he did intentionally design it with um, uh, anthropomorphic uh, qualities to basically have to give it human gestures because he referred back to like Kong and Mighty Joe Young, where you can't have them quite do what the Emir does to express itself, and that really shines and really comes across because the Emir is just basically brought here 
you know, of his, not of his own accord, but he's forced to come, obviously. And then he's in a new environment by himself, and he just gets the crap beat out of him constantly. Um, well, think about, kind of a, well, well, think about, <laughs> like, because he grows every day, and of course he becomes giant, as, you know, will happen in these movies, but really put in perspective how how long this creature is even alive, a few days. And from the second yeah. it's born, it's <laughs> constantly just messed with and poked and prodded and hurt. And so this poor thing, its entire life is literally was uh, several days of pain and suffering. And, um, and geez, it's such a brilliant creation. And the way... Ray animated it. I mean, this character just it pu- it pulls at your heartstrings without going over the top and sappy with it. It's just by its very nature, it is just a tortured creature, and it it's it it, it he doesn't Ray doesn't lay it on thick. You know, he just lets it come out through its very natural movements and expressions. I found myself thinking about how. We, we definitely treat animals like, you know, to, for studying purposes and stuff, because that's what they essentially brought it to earth for. Cause their whole deal is they're trying to, they're trying to put man back on Venus, but we can't breathe in the atmosphere because it's full of toxins. This creature has the ability to survive there and they want to know why. And, you know, the, eventually you'd have to think they're going to dissect it, right? They're going to analyze it and look at it and just pull, tear it apart kind of thing. And it's just, it's just very sad and it does a really good job of, as Bird said, not pushing that this idea on you so hard that you're like, oh, just shut up with it. You really feel for the creature. And honestly, it looks like the creature's animation is, is fluid. I mean, very, very fluid. It looks great. Um, and by the end, you're just like, man, that sucks. Like, it, it really, you definitely have this heartstring tug um, that is actually meaningful, you know, for a monster movie. That's, that's certainly an accomplishment. <clears throat> yeah, no, I love this movie as well. Um, it's one of my favorite Harryhausen movies, and um, it's because of the the Emir is such an incredible creature, and I, I mean, there's so much personality that it might as well have been a human playing playing him. Like Ray, he he had the things he did with this character are incredible, um, and I think this movie really went to great strides to make sure anytime the emir hurts somebody it's always in self-defense it's always after it's been attacked first um even with the dog which is another animal like he doesn't do anything until the dog attacks him and then um and part of it i think is you know your standard kind of b-movie writing and part of it i think is intentional but the stupidity of the human characters especially the lead is almost astounding and i i have to th- i mean some of it you know you laugh at and it's like oh uh, the the s- screenplay but some of it has to be intentional right i mean there's the scene where he's in the barn and that's when you know the, he fights the dog and what does this guy say he says whatever you do don't provoke it and what does he do he's like uh someone give me a a, a pitchfork you know and he starts yeah and he starts like trying to poke it into this cage and it's like you literally just told that said hey whatever you do don't provoke it now you're poking it with a stick like like in you know i mean uh, it's he's you know our lead character so you know he's 
projected as meaning well, but it's like, Jesus, guys, brain dead. And, you know, the creature's missing? Oh, maybe it's in the, the river? How do we find it? Oh, let's just throw bombs in the river. Like, what are you, you... You know this thing's scared. You're, you know, you're kind of flirting with the this um, this woman who's the daughter of a scientist who's, like, really sympathetic to the creature, and you're over your, like, just being an idiot. And, like, there's a... <laughs> One part I always laugh at is when he's a, when the emir is like you know destroying the city, he he gets in a car and drives it into its leg and just crashes the car into it and it's like the emir just like looks down and he like runs away. It's like what was this guy thinking? So you know he has that typical like stupid hero B movie thing going. B movies uh, back then had a way of making scientists and military guys just really stupid and. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. But that's always something I get a chuckle out of with this movie. But but furthermore, I think that that hammers home the point of just, you know, how we just, we think we know what we're doing when it comes to animals and how we treat them, but we really don't. And so that's why you have a guy saying, don't provoke it, but I'm going to poke it with a stick. Um, and uh, and yeah, even like the, the fight with the elephant at the end, you know, it's it's all in self-defense. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and I mean, aside from just the Emir being an incredible, incredible movie monster, um, it's just, uh, it, it, it moves along at a great pace, um, and it's, it's, it's never boring, and, uh, I really, really love this movie, um, and it's, yeah, as far as Ray's, uh, sci-fi endeavors, this is one of, if not my favorite. I mean, there's a couple that are really close. Like, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is really close, but I don't know if it's quite there. Um, but yeah, I just love this movie. And I mean, the, the personality, I can't, I, I've said it a hundred times, but I can't say it enough. What Ray did with this creature is incredible. The first time you see him coming out of that gel egg, you know, the way he rubs his eyes, like, I mean that that's like that gives it so much humanity which sounds silly we're talking about a monster but it gives it so much humanity that I mean geez I mean think how many effects guys would have been like okay we're making a movie about this monster and it's hatching you know it's just going to crawl out of an egg but no he took the extra time to animate these these gestures that really make it feel like a living breathing animal like a living breathing creature like of course, it, it it wakes up and it opens its eyes and, you know, the light blinds it and it rubs its eyes, you know. But no, not a lot of people would go and take those measures. And, um, I mean, you could probably throw out a bunch of examples of stuff like that, that in this movie that the Emir does. And, I mean, he's he's just amazing. He, I think he's one of the best and most sad giant monsters in any movie, Japanese, American, what have you. He's just amazing. Yeah, and you talked about the uh, little motions, the little uh, details you might have missed the first time you watched this, like rubbing his eyes. Some of the other creatures um, that uh, Harryhausen would animate would give them busy work to do. So whether they were uh, scratching, whether they had dropped something, maybe they were just uh, you know looking at something, looking around, getting their bearings, he would give them that kind of stuff to do, which a, any good director would do with 
their cast, they would uh, don't just have them stand there like you know uh, mannequins. Just have them do something. Give them some busy work. Give them uh, put something in their hands to uh, you know observe, finagle with something. You know, uh, it's uh, it's just something that that he was directing his characters, bringing them to life, uh, and they're in a, they're they're models they're they're you know they're puppets and he's able to give them more life than some of the actors which terry gilliam had an interesting comment in one of the <laughs> documentaries you probably are thinking of it right now yeah it's like mm-hmm. he's such a master at what he did and i love his films for the technical effects but it sure would have been nice if he had some good actors go along with them that was a hilarious co- yeah it was a great comment yeah, but, uh, you know, in this film, I think, yeah, when it comes to Harry House in any ways, he's just, like I said, he is hitting all the marks. This becomes a creature design that ends up in both, uh, what is the seventh voyage of Sinbad, mm-hmm. uh, similar in some respects to the Cyclops, but very similar to the Kraken creature in his last film. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just that, that facial expression the the body design all of that um you know he started with a a a character that he poured himself really into and such originality to this character um you know there's the egg hatching scene keeps getting rehashed and, and and talked about by critics only because it is so good and i think he recognized uh that in creating it it wasn't like it was well we need an egg hatching scene and this is what i came up with um no i don't think he ever thought that way about it uh i think he he said okay this is going to be a very um iconic moment i think of uh other other movies with egg hatching scenes and a creature coming out of them and i can't think of one that comes even close to this with maybe the exception of the alien but i gotta say that the alien you know and and some of the other creatures that um these classic films uh, portray um you know the alien very much gets his inspiration from this film and of course uh, it came uh what it the terror from beyond mm-hmm. space yeah yeah like so, but the egg hatching scene, I also think of the, the Berugan from the Gamera series, that egg hatching mm. scene. Quite good, but I think or this that one did. freakish monstrosity that pours out of the egg in uh, Gappa. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, geez, I, I can't say much. Like, as far as giant monster movies go, this really checks off all, all my, my personal boxes. Um, it's it's a great movie, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I'd give this one a four point five uh, tortured uh, existences. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, uh, man, I'm I'm at a solid four. I, I think the cast, if it were just based on a monster, it'd be a five. Um, but there is a cast, there is a story, and there's some you know parts in it that are just kind of eh. So I'm I'm at a solid four. But if you were to look at the work of Harryhausen, like it's it's wonderful. I can't say no, enough great things about it. And I'm going to keep my rating within rewatchability and in the Harryhausen world since this 
is my favorite hands down it's a five i mean i just i can't watch this movie enough without seeing something something new mm-hmm. each time uh i love watching it in both black and white and color the colorization um is really something to marvel at legend films just just did an amazing job and when you've seen other colorizations of films and then you compare it to what they did with this and give them credit it came from beneath the sea i thought looked quite good um i have not had the chance to see the colorization of uh, earth versus the flying saucers yet but if it's legend films i can imagine it's you know top Um. notch well, th- that's a good segue to get into the colorization real quick, because Ray was famously against colorization for most of his life. Um, and, um, yeah, with Sony and Columbia, they ended up colorizing um, the three black and white movies he did for them, which, yeah, it came from Beneath the Sea, Earth vs. Flying Saucers, and uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth in the early 2000s. Um, and Ray, pretty much, he kind of had to be convinced and I think he had seen, you know, the colorizations of Kong and Mighty Joe Young and other movies. And, um, and yeah, I mean, colorizations always looked weird. Um, and especially, like, the earlier ones, like, like yeah, like King Kong, like, just kind of, like, blurry color- coloring. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was just, everything looked kind of strange. And then... Um, Legend Films, I guess, you know, they presented him with, like, a demo reel of stuff they did, and he was really kind of amazed by it, and, and you know, he always kind of, back back then, you know, he did like to do black and white because it was easier for him to work, you know, it was less money, less labor, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, but if if not for those things, you know, he, he did say, like, yeah, if, if it wasn't for those factors, I would have done them in color, but, you know, didn't have the money, and it was more labor, and it was... A, Back then, it was a way more complicated process because it was still pretty primitive, you know, color film was. And, um, and yeah, he, he looked at this demo reel and was like, let's do it. And, um, yeah, it, it's pretty good. I think as far as colorizations go, the legend colorizations are probably the best I've seen. That's not to say that it's the way that I prefer it or the way that, um, you know, I, I watch it when I rewatch it. Um, but the the fun thing is, like on the on the Blu-rays, you can toggle as you're watching the movie between color and black and white. So every now and then, I, I I'll be like, oh, I wonder what this scene looks like in color, you know, and switch it on. But I always go back to the black and white, you know. I I just love black and white. Um, but yeah, it is pretty good for the most part. The one thing is like um, like the, William Hopper, the lead actor, like his hair. I I guess it's probably supposed to be blonde, but the colorization it almost looks like a weird like copper. <laughs> like appearance um yeah but yeah i mean there's stuff here and there that look kind of unnatural but for the most part it is quite good um and it's like i said i never watch the whole movie like that but usually i'll be like yeah i'm gonna I, you know just for the hell of it i'm gonna put this scene on in color just for fun and you know it's a fun little feature to have and uh, as sad as it is there are a lot of young people that won't watch anything in black and white to, so you know, hey, if you got to show them the colorized version to kind of get their feet wet, uh, you know, maybe they can graduate to the black and white versions later on. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, but you're forgetting. You're forgetting the the um, the wonderful, amazing colorization of the Italian uh, colorization of Godzilla. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Godzilla, the, the rainbow psychedelic colorization. Oh, it's crazy. Someone just did, like, a fan restoration of it, so it's uh, it's actually kind of watchable now if you can find it oh my if they would have shown this to harry Housen, he 
yeah, yeah. Uh, afterwards saying, hey, yeah, just kidding. This is what yeah, it really looks like. I don't know what this is, but get it away from me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and uh, I think what sent uh, Harryhausen over the edge for color uh, to agree to color and to be a consultant for it was, I believe it was a Shirley Temple film. Um, and when he saw it, it just looked like it had such new life to it. And he said, yeah, that could really work for my films, actually. Bringing, breathing new life and introducing them to a new audience. Like you said, some young people, um, it just the black and white is a turnoff for them. They just can't watch it. It's hopefully the, those people can be saved. Hopefully. <laughs> They'll grow up one day. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, certain scenes do, like, I feel like, you know, you got to watch it in black and white for the atmosphere. Like, the fight with the dog, like, in the silhouette, like, in color, it doesn't have the same, like, oomph, really. Yeah, like, um, But yeah, man, I mean, that that's that's our, like, this is that's been our intro to Harryhausen. I mean, if this is your, if you're not familiar with his work and you're into Godzilla, I think these three movies are probably the best entry point because they probably have the most in common with with those um and uh i'm gonna wrap up and i feel like we might have some some words um but i do love stop motion and as far as practical effects for me it suits miniatures stop motion um you know makeup and stuff i mean in camera effects that's what i like even if you can tell a stop motion creature isn't real or you can tell it might be a guy in a suit in a miniature set it is a physical object that you're looking at and CGI is, is is good in its own ways and for its own things. I mean, certain things are amazing with CG, like the new Planet of the Apes movies. It's incredible, but it's a tool that's used too much and, and you know, it doesn't have the same mystique as practical effects. You know, you can look at uh, the Retosaurus rampage and say, oh my gosh, I know it's stop motion, but like, how do you do it? How did he composite this so well? How did he animate each little brick that's falling? Um, and uh, and really, I, I think that, especially here in America, um, we look at special effects like they need to be realistic looking. And, you know, that's not what Ray was going for. And furthermore, um, that's not what the, the Japanese films are going for either. I think Japan um, approaches effects very differently, and they they really like an artificial look to it. It's part of the style. It's a stylization, and um, some of it might look cheesy, but some of it is kind of you know supposed to look the way it looks because it's part of the why it's cool is because it doesn't look real. It looks like something something else, um, you know, and that's why Subaraya loved. Um, stuff like uh, uh, you know Jerry Anderson's work, like Thunderbirds and 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 stuff like that. Um, so I have a quote here from Harryhausen. It's a little lengthy, but I think it really just sums everything up that we were talking about: stop motion, especially this battle versus realism. Um, and Ray, uh, he said, model animation is been relegated to a reflection or a starting point for creature computer effects that has reached a high uh, that few could have anticipated. However, for all the wonderful achievements of the computer, the process uh, creates creatures that are too realistic. And for me, that makes them unreal because they have lost a vital element, which is a dream quality. 
fantasy is for me, realizing strange beings that are so far removed from 21st century, these beings would include not only dinosaurs, because no matter what scientists say, we still don't know how they looked or moved, but also creatures from the mind. Fantastical creatures where the unreal quality becomes even more vital. Stop motion supplies the perfect breath of life for them, offering a look of pure fantasy because their movements are beyond anything we know. Willis O'Brien once told me that you should never attempt to create what you can photograph in real life. A piece of advice I've applied to all of my creatures, essentially meaning if you can if don't create anything that you can film that's real. Always go for the unreal. Um and then he goes on further, and, you know, some people might, especially listening to this podcast, and Lord knows how this fan base is, um, he goes on to say, nothing is real, and none of them could have been a man in a suit. Um, so, I mean, before we head out, I mean, do you guys want to kind of deconstruct that quote a little bit? Like, what are your thoughts on it? And, uh, I mean, the last sentence we can get into in a moment, but just overall, like, like Matt, how, what do you think about, about, I guess, that viewpoint that he's expressing here? I mean, I, the last sentence notwithstanding, um, it, it's dead on because I think he's basically talking about having this element of fantasy that sort of gets removed when you bring in this trying to make everything look realistic. The f- right. The, the fact that it affe- appears artificial is part of it. Well, it's almost paradoxical in a way, but like I'll point to something like The Matrix. If there's a, In the second film, there's this huge, massive fight scene, and you have Neo jumping like from like from person to person as he's fighting uh, Anderson or whatever. And, um, or the, the agent or whatever his name is. And it, it looks the, the, the CG in that film in that, in those particular sequence, because we know that they are supposed to be people. It almost, it, it basically betrays that scene. Like the first time I saw it in theaters, I even thought, man, that CG was pretty questionable. And I think that's what he's onto here. If you create something that's fantastical, like you don't really know what it's supposed to look like or how it's supposed to move. And so in many ways, you don't really know any better. And it's the perfect blend of realism and fantasy coming together on screen. And I think that's what makes a lot of these films, whether it's Japanese science fiction films or the Harryhausen films, um, work really well. Yeah, Nick, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. The, um, the, the What he's saying, essentially, that I'm gathering, again, without taking on the last comment there, but uh, stop motion is within itself a work of art. And it's kind of like when somebody says, you know, I don't like that painting. Well, do you like any paintings? Yeah, I don't like paintings at all. Well, that's not your form of art that you enjoy looking at. Uh, What do you like? And so, you know, you might say, well, I like films. I like, uh, I like music, you know, so your particular form of art, stop motion is a form of art. It's a form of, uh, it's a palette just like a painter uses paints and just like a sculptor, you know, is, is molding, you know, stone or, or metal or whatever, what have you. Um, it is the, it's the form of art that he's chosen to use and the palette that he's chosen to use. And he does it incredibly well, obviously. So, um, if you enjoy watching the creatures come to life that he's put together, then, you know, you've got a great, collection of films that just uh you know just just hit the mark for you actually and i when i look at some of the fantastic creatures and jason and the argonauts which i'm sure you guys will get oh my to gosh uh, it's incredible 
<laughs> yeah, it is absolutely incredible. Just full of creatures, and um, they're just you know they they encompass that word fantastic. They are uh, outside of our you know our normal expectations. We don't expect to see a skeleton come to life and it fighting people or that statue uh, come to life in Jason and the Argonauts. I think that's one of the the, the most amazing scenes, especially the, with the sound effects of it moving, you know, uh, bringing it and tying it all together. Um, you know, believability, whatever, whatever, uh, you know, whether you believe it or not is, is kind of uh, aside uh, from the point, but what's your expectations when you go into a movie like Transformers? Uh, it's <laughs> the expectations are exactly what you're going to get. You're, you're going to get, you know, uh, forgive me, but mindless action mm-hmm. and and energy poured into these characters who are constantly running and never get tired. So uh, it's already uh, in the realm of fantasy, just based on the fact that it just cannot happen in real life. At least with the human characters in in the struggles that they have with uh, Harryhausen's creatures, the struggle is real. Uh, they are <laughs> they're unpredictable and. Uh, and they and they have uh, just fantastical abilities. They strike a chord. They they strike some fear into the characters around them of the unknown. He keeps saying that in a lot of his commentaries. The unknown. What is lurking beneath the seas? What is you know out there in outer space? And and he brings them to life. And so that's what um, I really appreciate about his uh, his art. And uh, you know it's it's really sad to know that he was kind of really the only one doing it i mean it's not like he solely was the only one doing it but who else can you name if you're not in in a fandom that really looks up the fact that willis o'brien had a few other things but they were kind of misses there were a few other stop motion animators out there but again name two or three uh i can't i really can't so you know when it comes down to stop motion it's ray harryhausen and uh you know uh Rest his soul. He passed away in 2013, and uh, uh, even Guillermo del Toro in the end of Pacific Rim gives him a great credit at the end there, as well as Ishiro Honda. Mm-hmm. So awesome. Who, yeah, I mean, if there's two guys you that that movie should be thanking, yeah, I mean, they those are guys that laid the groundwork for what Pacific Rim is, and del Toro has a whole Harryhausen like branch of his house that's just Harryhausen everything everywhere, including. Super lifelike, uh, sculpt, lifelike and life-size sculpture of him sitting and drinking tea, and like the little skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts are like pouring sugar in his tea or something, and like, I mean, yeah, uh, it's 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 his influence is amazing. Um, Peter Jackson as well is a big fan. Yep, of yep. Harry Housen's models, I think he owns some of them. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I mean, his later films, you know, Peter Jackson is kind of easy to make fun of, but he he's actually part of the like kind of committee that has worked to preserve Ray's work. Um, you know, him and some of the guys at Weta have like you know restored a lot of the models, and you know are kind of in charge of you know where where they go to be on display and and things like that. So I mean, Peter Jackson has done a. a great amount of work to to really preserve ray's legacy um and uh but yeah i mean essentially i i agree with him that uh you know you prefer a little bit of the artificial in your your effects movies sometimes i know i do it it makes them feel more 
interesting. It makes them look more interesting. It, it's, it's, again, Tsuburaya using a puppet horse that looks ridiculous in Frankenstein Conquers the World instead of a real horse. It's because he thought it was more interesting. And that's essentially what's going on here. That quote that we just pulled, that, that was kind of um, a little bit after he had said, you know, people often ask me, would I have liked to make Jurassic Park? And he said, although it's an excellent movie, the answer is no, because they're aiming for something completely different than what I like to go for. And um, uh, so, I mean, that last sentence of this quote, though, I mean, I typically I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't even bring it up as a, a really big point, but it's kind of a, a uh, an elephant in the room is that Ray was very openly critical and dismissive of Godzilla and um, really just kind of the, the men in suit effects methods. Um, I think that, I, I think it's more the fan bases don't really want to acknowledge one another uh, and it's kind of for silly reasons. Um, I mean, the stuff with Willis O'Brien and King Kong versus Godzilla is truly awful. So, I mean, there's a little bit of merit there. But um, but uh, essentially, Ray, I, you know, he gets a lot of heat from kaiju fans for that. Like, um, And I don't know. I really think that it's kind of, I mean, it's within his right to be able to express those things. And, um, you know, I think he looks at it the same way that we might look at CGI. I mean, look at some of the comments we just said about CGI. I mean, I don't hate CGI, but I definitely think of it as a less interesting version of a way to make a movie like this. And the people that are dogging Ray for saying, you know, yeah, I, I think that, you know, Man in Suit, it's the easier, cheaper way out. Uh, and stop motion's better. I mean, how many of you guys that would dog him for that when Godzilla 2014 came out or like were saying, "Oh, it's not the real Godzilla because CGI is awful." I mean, I mean, really, let's examine what we're saying here. Um, and and I think the nuts and bolts of it are Ray felt like it was you know a less sophisticated form of effects, and I agree to disagree with him. I think they're both great for accomplishing different things. Just like I think CGI is great for something else, but you know, is it my is CG my preference? No. And is suits and stuff, is that Ray's preference? No. Do I think CGI is the easy way out? Yes. Does Ray think suits and miniature um, models and guys in suits is an easier way out? Yeah. And you know, he's within his rights to say that. And I'm I'm you know, I'm not gonna jump up and down. And I and I mean, think of it this way though. I mean, think of all the Japanese tokusatsu artists that worship ray i mean would they want you to take that stance no you know they would say you know ray thought about the the japanese stuff what he did but his work was incredible and you know you would you can never take that away so i mean that that's kind of that's kind of my my piece on it as far as none of them being able to be a man in a suit eh, that's where the, it's a little bit more slippery because you can make a man in a suit cyclops but it wouldn't be the Harryhausen Cyclops, you know. It would be different. I'm sure you could do a cool man in suit Cyclops, but it wouldn't be the same as what Ray would do with it. And so there's a little bit of yes and no to that. I agree and disagree with that statement. Yeah, you're you're dead on there. I mean, it, it's. I would just rather say why why can't we have why can't we have both why why can't we have them all why can't we have stop motion why can't we have summation and practical effects and why can't we have cg and use them 
in a film where they're best suited, right? And depending on what your goal is, you might not use one in one film and use it in the other film. So it's it's one of those things where, like, my preference, I love tokusatsu effects. It's just what I grew up with, and that's what my bias leans towards. But I don't look down on, you know, anim- I don't look down on stop motion. And I, and I do kind of, I mean, CG is one of those things where because a lot of times they're going for something quote-unquote realistic – and it often does not look realistic. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of sneer at that sometimes. But I don't hate CG when it's used really well. I and mean, we talked about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a perfect example mm-hmm. of a blend of practical and CG. So. Well, uh, or, I mean, and I think we said this on the Common Rider episode. I love when... So, that One of the things I love about Amamiya is he does all of them. He does CG, he does stop motion, he does suits, he does miniatures. And he'll throw them all into one... And it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, and he's a madman with it. That's why he's so cool. Like he's like, you know, hey, I'm not gonna play sides. Give me, give me all of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, his influence on the Japanese stuff and the stuff here stateside. I mean, it, it, Ray Harryhausen reaches into Godzilla, which goes into Ultraman, which goes into Kamen Rider, and I mean, everything is just a big snowball, as Ray likes to say it. And then over here on the States, I mean, Spielberg, Harryhausen, or Harryhausen is Harryhausen, what am I talking about? Uh, Spielberg, George Lucas, James Cameron, I mean, anyone who's anyone in sci-fi and monster movies will tell you the reason I'm doing this is because of Ray Harryhausen. And there's a reason that everyone from Guillermo del Toro to Eiji Tsuburaya were so into his work. And um, because it is that special. And all, all we're talking about, the rivalry between, you know, the two forms. I mean, let's be honest. Ray's origin story is almost exactly the same as Tsuburaya's origin story. Saw King Kong, changed their life, got drafted in the war, did propaganda movies, started doing stuff on their own, and, I mean, uh, like, try and tell me you lock these two guys in a room without the language barrier, and they wouldn't just nerd out. (laughs) You know? That's how I like to look at it. I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up the (laughs) show. It's a great quote. Um, So, Nick, thank you for being... A great guest on the show. Appreciate you being on here. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Did you have any final thoughts to, to kind of cap everything off? Yeah, just uh, um, when it came down to the non-Godzilla monsters and um, visual effects, uh, I always go back to Harryhausen. Same. Either Harryhausen, yeah, either Harryhausen or some, you know, somewhat the Universal monsters. But I really, um, mostly, I guess, when it comes to Universal monsters, lean creature from the Black Lagoon. He's my favorite of that uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, collection of monsters, if you will. But yeah, I always go back to Harryhausen creatures. Uh, they just, uh, they just have the rewatchability for me. And uh, even when I'm watching them, and my kids happen to see. Uh, what I'm watching, they're drawn to it for some reason. And I'm like, this is great. There's something about these films and the and the, the visual effects you see on the screen that you can't take your eyes off of. Uh, with Harryhausen, I, I always felt like, um, you know, I just, I'm in for a treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and each time, you know, I find myself just, uh, you know, liking the films even more. So, yeah, I definitely recommend 
uh, a lot of these films to fans. If they haven't had the chance to check them out, check them out. Really, just give them a chance. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, think of all the the famous names we dropped that are probably people you guys love. And I mean, I, I, I'll just say there's a reason that Peter Jackson's very first like movies he made when he was young were stop motion about a giant cyclops. There's a reason Eiji Tsuburaya owned a person, his own personal print of mighty Joe young that he watched obsessively. And it's because Harryhausen is the man. And, um, I mean, his influence reaches across generations across continents and, um, you know, it is everything that we're here talking about on on this podcast, like the subject matter of Kaiju transmissions would not be here without Ray Harryhausen. Um, and, you know, furthermore, Willis O'Brien. And keep in mind, if Subaraya wanted his way, you know, he would have been doing what they were doing. He would have been doing stop motion. And, you know, and, and you know, he, he was able to sneak stop stop motion into um movies like king kong vs godzilla the original godzilla you know wh- wherever he could because he loved this stuff and um you know he loved harryhausen he loved o'brien and so really everything traces it back to those guys so that's why we're here and i remember when harryhausen passed away that was like a gut punch for me like you know, as far as like celebrity or famous people deaths, that was one of the harder ones to handle, even though he was, you know, led a good life into his 90s. Um, oh, you know, I forgot to mention, and you guys are toy guys, so maybe you'll appreciate this. The one and only time I came really close to buying an X plus vinyl figure was their figure of the Emir. Uh, uh, they're, yes. they're actually uh, going to be doing a whole Harry Housen line soon. Oh, nice. 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 <laughs> Now's the time to, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, for you to, and actually I was going to mention uh, with his conversation on one of the DVDs, his conversation with Tim Burton, I believe it was Tim Burton, when he mentions uh, the model figures that have come out of his characters, that he did mention that the Japanese companies that have been putting them out have given a lot of love and affection to the films to give them realism. Whenever that um, interview came out, I'm not sure, uh, you know, if it was early 2000s, and I don't know if he was talking about X Plus or another Japanese company, but I can only imagine that he was, since realism is kind of part of their uh, their thing with their figures, uh, right? F- uh, jumping out of the film and onto your shelf, and uh, there's the Emir, uh, just like you would have seen him in the film. Uh, that's one I would be, yeah, I'd be tempted to get to. And Matt, have X Plus said which uh, monsters they were doing yet? They have posted, there was a um, convention recently and they posted a bunch of pictures of stuff. I'd have to go back and look, okay. I think. But I mean, it was it was basically a kind of a Harryhausen exclusive line. Like they, they put them out a while ago and now they're kind of going back and revisiting it. Okay, so. I remember some of the older ones. They were they were pretty cool. Like I said, I almost got that Emir. <laughs> um, but no, this has been a lot of fun. And Matt... You're fairly new to the Harryhausen stuff, and um, I mean, y- you haven't seen any nothing yet. I mean, discovering the Harryhausen filmography is like discovering like pizza for the first time. You'll you'll you're really gonna like doing this. Yeah, looking forward to it. I, and like, like I said, I've seen a few of them, and so I know 
like Jason the Argonauts is a wonderful movie, but I, I haven't watched it in probably 10 years from start to finish. So I'm really looking forward to revisiting some of the stuff that I have seen and seeing some things that I, I haven't. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that about wraps it up. Um, uh, and, you know, he, stay tuned because we, we will be doing the whole Harryhausen filmography. So keep an eye out for more Harryhausen episodes. In the meantime, um, we got a lot of other stuff going on. So keep listening and been cool thank you so much gentlemen all right